Hello and welcome to Callous and Witness, the podcast devoted to personal explorations of the New York Film Festival. I'm your host, as always, Ryan Swen, and today we are back once again. I know that these episodes have become only more sporadic, but hopefully, and more extended, but hopefully, uh, beginning with this, perhaps, uh, in by some small miracle, these episodes will become more streamlined and more frequent. I uh, can't promise anything like that. Uh, but this is for the 17th edition of the New York Film Festival in 1979. And here to discuss the festival with me is freelance film critic for Slant Magazine, Jake Cole. Hey, how are you? Good. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Of course. Uh, how are you? Good. And also should note, this is actually the first uh, main episode that I've recorded here in Georgia, in the Atlanta metropolitan area. And as it happens, Jake is also from there. So though we can't obviously record in person, uh, we're still doing this over Zoom. It's still a closer proximity. I don't know if that'll affect uh, Wi-Fi reception or anything like that, or the sort of stability <laughs> of the call, but ho- hopefully, you know, it, it's it, it's a nice proximity and a nice sort of feeling. Um, so for, for this edition, uh, the selection committee was Richard Roud, once again, as the program director, Richard Corliss, Molly Haskell, Charles Machiner, Tom Luddy as the West Coast consultant, and Mary Mearson as the retrospective consultant. Uh, notably, Roger Greenspan uh, as his tenure as the as one of the selection committee members is over, and I believe this was Haskell's first. And this took place, as, as usual, at Alice Tully Hall. And this is a what did you think of this of this slate? I thought this was a really good uh, slate. Um, it was interesting from the perspective of uh, approaching a past festival where I would imagine distribution was obviously a much more sluggish uh, enterprise than it is now because there are so many films that I have had previously logged as 1978. Um, mm-hmm. And the fact that they were playing here with brand new things that felt like a head trip considering now, you know, so many film festivals are about getting the absolute premieres of things. Um, but I had a really good time going through these and it was a really nice break from the usual year end uh, bonanza <laughs> for any kind of criticism, um, being able to take a break and watch, you know, things that were just things that didn't feel like content in the way that so much year end <laughs> stuff tends to feel. Um, but I really enjoyed these. Right, yeah, I think this was a, a, this was definitely one of the stronger editions, especially after last, uh, last the last festival. I think that it's, 
certainly in the top half, maybe somewhere hovering around the top, within the top 10 at least. Um, I I think that one sort of criticism I, I have, which is not necessarily fair, but which sort of I think is sort of indicative of my headspace in terms of where of, of the New York Film Festival and where it should be and so on and so forth is simply that there's a shocking amount of films in the English, English language, mm-hmm. uh, which is for, for, which has been, I think that that's certainly increased since the first festival, but at the same time, there's a sort of very marked increase here where it's something like, where it's seven films from the U S and also notably a couple of films, which a couple of films from, say Australia and the UK but there's also some films which even though they were filmed in other countries uh are were in English so obviously I can't fault them specifically but there's a sort of it's a strange trend which I don't know uh, we'll see if that continues but it's uh not necessarily it sort of marks down the festival in in whatever sort of arbitrary ranking I've assigned to it that being said there are a lot of great films and more even more so it's there's a strong consistency to it i think that basically all the films to some extent have something really quite interesting and there's a great variety i think even even more than before i think there's a nice variety to the filmmakers and to the films um i should say that there that in terms of the coverage of the festival this is actually noted as being a more solemn mood than usual uh and the this was attributed both to the strong films which gave a sort of subdued reaction they were not necessarily the type to provoke strong audience reactions and also the the films that they considered duds were just considered dull Mm -hmm. uh, by (laughs) at least by the new york times so it's a i wouldn't necessarily say that and i think that some of the films that i do uh I do love in this to provoke that sort of strong reaction. But I then again, I've never really been at a festival screen that's provoked that sort of outburst uh, either way. So difficult to say. Um, sh- should say that there were, uh, that there was also an exhibition of technological developments in filmmaking, uh, which was also the, both the latest specialized devices, but also things like magic lanterns and hand crank cameras. Uh, which is a sort of interesting, interesting sort of side-side ex- exhibition. And there's also this pretty interesting prelude of a six-day festival of American independent feature films sponsored by uh, Film Society of Lincoln Center. And it was directly before opening night. Um, six new or unreleased films and nine already released. Uh, the former were... Heartland by Richard Pierce, Gal Young, Gal Young by Victor Nunez, Northern Lights by John Hansen and Rob Nilsson, Ellen Brista by Robert M. Young, previous uh, filmmaker in the festival, Bush Mama by Hali Garima, and The Scenic Route by Mark Rappaport, and the already released films, including uh, a few other NIF alums and an actual NIF, or a few NIF film alums, uh, Killer's Kiss by Stanley Kubrick. Crazy Cult by John Cordy, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song by Melvin Van Peebles, Badlands by Terrence Malick, Previous Closing Night of All Things, Glenn and Randa by Jim McBride, Ice by Robert Kramer, The Cool World by Shirley Clark, 
The Brig by Jonas Mekas, another Nephilim, and Trash by Paul Morrissey. So this was, I don't know exactly the sort of impetus for, I think it might have been in partnership with a with a distributor or someone who simply wanted to show these sort of American independent films. But it's sort of interesting locating that within the actual, uh, within the trend towards more American films mm-hmm. in the festival. Uh, they didn't necessarily give a specific link like that, but um, yeah. And in and now for the very long admissions uh, omissions list uh, from the can comp- from can in the competition. The Palm Door was shared between Apocalypse Now and the Tin Drum. Uh, for the grand prize was given to uh, Kontrolovsky's Siberiad. Best Actress was given to Norma Ray. Uh, Best Actor was given to The China Syndrome, and there was a, and there were supporting actor, uh, actor prizes given to Wojciech, uh and Dear Papa, and also in the competition uh, were actually quite a few notable films by both both established directors and up and coming ones, uh, Andrei Techne's Bron- The Bronte Sisters. Uh, Miklos Janshow's Hungarian Rhapsody, Jack Doyon's The Hussy, uh, Alain, Alain Corneau's Serie Noir, Thomas Gutierrez's Alea's The Survivors, Bo Wiederberg's Victoria, and Andre Delvaux's Women Between Wolf and Dog. From Uncertain Regard, there was uh, Strobier's From the Clouds to the Resistance, and and uh, Fassbender's The Third Generation. Though of course he was he will be very well represented in this uh, in this lineup. Out of competition, there was Francesco Rossi's Christ Stopped at Eboli and Woody Allen's Manhattan. And in director's Fortnite, there was Joan Tewksbury's Old Boyfriends, Nikita Mikhailkov's Five Evenings, and Jerry Menzel's Those Wonderful Movie Cranks. Uh, from Berlin, the Golden Bear went to Peter Lilenthal's David and also in the lineup were Luke Millet's Origins of a Meal, Paul Schrader's Hardcore, uh, Francois Truffaut's Love on the Run. Very notable, considering this was the first Truffaut in a number of years to not appear in the festival, breaking his uh, quite considerable streak. Uh, also, Alain Tanner's Messidor, Stanley Donnan's Movie Movie, and Renaud Sen's Parashuram. In Venice, we're very close to actually bring back the competition. Uh, but there were there were um, uh, Stephen Nolan's Pass Montagna and Bogdanovich's St. Jack. And in terms of the uh, other films in the just that played but were not were not included for whatever reason, um, were Stalker, which is per- perhaps the most notable non inclusion. Um, Stalker, all that jazz, the brood being there breaking away Tess, Vengeance is Mine, uh, Real Life, Scum, Arabato, Ten, The Man Who Stole a Son, Legend of the Mountain, Rain in the Mountain, Buffet Fraud, Dirty Ho, Quintet, Chilly Scenes of Winter, Soft Fiction, The Niver Night, Don Giovanni, West Indies, Drugstore Romance, Jaguar, Trouble at Night, Mad Max, and La Femme Qui Pleure, and uh, we're very close to the end, but these are the films from the new director's new films uh, lineup. A few quite notable names to come later on in the in NIF history. 
There's Helke Sanders' all-round reduced personality, Vera Neubauer's animation for live action, Jilali Ferhati's A Breach in the Wall, Wolfgang Peterson's The Consequence, Leon Ichasso and Orlando Jimenez Leal's El Super, Girish Casaravalli's Gahata Shrada, Nikos Panayotopoulos's Idlers of the Fertile Valley, Werner Schroeter's The Kingdom of Naples, Chantal Ackerman's Le Rendezvous d'Anna, obviously a very prominent uh, NIF inclusion later to come, uh, Mario Pejoto's Limite, Edward Sakharayev's Manly Times, Jeff Stevens' Skin Deep, Joaquin Pedro de Andrade's Tropical Fruit, Peter Greenaway's Vertical Features Remake, uh, another another NIF, not necessarily mainstay, but he's well represented. Another Peter Greenway film, A Walk Through H, and Eagle Pinnell's The Whole Shooting Match, who has a film later in the festival. Uh, so definitely, I, I I think that after last year, which I, I think didn't have all that many noble omissions, there are definitely some, and definitely a variety of filmmakers, a variety of uh, are, um, established filmmakers that don't necessarily have films in the festival. Obviously, as we said bef- at the top, that's not necessarily a sort of demerit aside from the aside from the English, the surfeit of English films, but I think that's uh, something, something certainly noteworthy. Um, though, of course, people like Tarkovsky had sort of uh, sort of sparse or relatively sparse considering their stature representation in NIF. Uh, also, uh, for a just a brief catch-up corner, I finally watched The Bench of Desolation, uh, the Claude Chabrol, Henry James adaptation for TV, one hour long, which finally got subtitles. Uh, and it is completely wonderful film and I think very in line with the shovels that we've covered on the podcast prior and especially something like just before nightfall in terms of it's sort of it's very chilly very cold sort of demeanor and manner and it especially just gets at the sort of cruelty the the paramount sense of of destruction and dissolution of of a man's life before it is sort of regained or or mended in some almost inconceivable way and it's just even though it's only an hour it's just full of the the sort of the almost sadistic glee that that Chabrol can can muster almost better than anyone else uh so i think that should do it for for our intro, uh, just a but a one final note at the very top, which is a very welcome one, is that this is actually the first podcast where where at least one of us will have seen every single film because they have all been available. Uh, they're all available for the first time. Uh, certainly, the the opening of a certain site uh, is ha- has much to do with it, but it's very welcome nonetheless. And with that, we will dive right into the slate.
for the opening night, we have uh, the actual, actually the final film in NIF by one of its mainstays, basically from the beginning of his career, and a very interesting way to go out. This is Bernardo Bertolucci's La Luna, which is even, it's pretty technically an Italian film, but uh, filmed mostly in English and starring Joe Clayburgh. And it is very much a Bertolucci film in all the ways that you might imagine. Uh, it is, it basically deals with uh, Katerina, and, who is a famous opera singer, and her son Joe, who's played by Matthew Barry. And the film is essentially after after the after Joe's father is dies unexpectedly, they both decide to go and live in Italy and for her to pursue her opera career and for him just to get away from the from basically all of his memories and all of his associations and the the film broadly speaking is always associated with the sort of essentially is incestuous relationship that the two have but i think it's actually much more notable in terms of the way it arrives there is that it's all about joe's in, he's somewhere around 13, 14 years old and his crippling addiction to heroin and the the rather perfunctory way it's it's introduced and the agonizing way it's carried out through the course of this almost two and a half hour film. And uh, it's, I liked it. It's, it's an interesting, like it reminds me certainly of the more overtly, anguished and overtly sexual and interpersonal nature of something like Last Tango in Paris than, say, uh, 1900, which was his previous film in the festival. Um, and while I, I'll definitely say that I prefer, even as his sort of political notions might, or his political, his rendering of political notions might sometimes be uh, off-putting or not necessarily as as striking as might be hoped i i do think i I prefer that mode that being said there is definitely the film more than anything commits totally to its to its interest commits totally to exactly what the what the logical extensions of all these neuroses all these hang-ups and psychological uh effects are and i think that it even while I'll, i'll certainly say it's overlong and it certainly goes maybe goes for some things it shouldn't doesn't really have the capacity to handle on i think i think it's still quite interesting if sometimes unbearable that's kind of my read on it the whole time i was watching it i thought what an amazing not just selection for a festival but specifically what an incredible opening night film to program because <laughs> this is like easily the most throwing into the deep end movie out of the entire slate mm. nothing else has come comes close to this in terms of strangeness and uh com- the confrontation of its subject matter but i did kind of surrender to it pretty quickly it is very <laughs> much um a bertolucci film which i haven't i haven't actually watched one of his films in a long time um mm. with the exception of the sheltering sky which kind of reminded me of this in the sense that it's not really political, but it's made with all of the history he had with those giant historical epics or these kind of widescreen canvas movies. 
but it's such an intimately scaled film and it's very it's very patient but at the same time it's it's incredibly opulent and it's the kind of style that i feel like italian filmmakers if i were to describe it to anyone i would just say this is a very italian film which is not helpful (laughs) but (laughs) it just it has that sort of visconti feel to it where it's this gigantic Mm. movie that's ultimately pitched on a very small scale about very narrow themes and ideas and its narrative is incredibly minimal for what a for what a long film it is and for how much ground it feels like it covers but i i spent the first half of it just sort of sinking into the wavelength of it because it's a very sunnily lit film it's a very mm-hmm. kind of it, it's it's one of the more lackadaisical, harrowing movies about drug addiction that I've ever seen. Because <laughs> um, so much of it, even when they, even when his mom knows that he's hooked on, you know, one of the hardest drugs there is, it's still a very kind, sort of light-hearted movie almost until you reach the incest part, and then it just takes a gigantic turn that is very in keeping with Bertolucci's other you know, sexually themed films, but it's such a stunning pivot that I would be curious to know how many walkouts there might have been at <laughs> at this screening. Apparently there were quite a few and oh, Burley yeah, was, was very nervous at opening night and it was largely received with polite applause. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so that gives some idea and that certainly makes sense. And it just, I definitely agree. I think, probably more than certainly more than half the film is basically just Clayburgh and Barry just dealing with the, with the sort of, with his addiction and with his absolute inability or absolute defiance of her asking him to quit simply because he, he just doesn't want to feel anything. It's as simple as that basically. And, and the incest part is almost more trying to just get him to feel something and trying to get him to feel a release than anything else and should know it's not it's it does not it's not full-on sex it's it's much more it i think that actually there was a sort of a last minute change apparently during filming to soften the nature of the incest and here it's quote unquote just masturbation heavy kissing and so on and so forth and and a very you know, a very obvious but very Bertolucci touch of having him suck on her breast at, <laughs> during during this scene, uh, which you know it has it certainly is what you'd expect from this sort of scenario, but it, it but this focus is definitely more on the heroine and there it's just it, like we say all of this sort of s- small scale part, but this is also a film that has the sort of time and inclination to f- film like two full opera songs yep uh, on, on stage which is which are actually done really well i wonder i feel like bertolucci has a sort of nice eye for theatrical for filming on a theatrical setting and the 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 sort of extended 20 some minute finale takes place at the baths of caracalla in this enormous sort of stage that's set up with amid these ruins and it seems to all be, and the 
also the sort of heroin aspects are tied up into his into his sort of fathering out of wedlock by an by a man played by Thomas Millian of all people <laughs> and the and the sort of reunion and this is sort of intimated at the very beginning which is itself even though it's a very light scene a very fun scene is also filled with this sort of agglomeration of sensory overload like there's a loud rock song playing there's the the young joe crying and trailing like it's like covered in honey dragging a, a a ball of yarn uh it it's it's hard to sort of pin this film down simply because it's so obstinately throwing every single thing it can possibly it possibly can and introducing characters willy-nilly bring in like one of the first scenes that joe has in italy is he's he's shooting up in a movie theater that's playing a dubbed marilyn monroe movie it's and and that then this this ceiling of that movie theater opens up to reveal the moon and it's it's just it's hard to really reconcile all of its parts and that's true of most berlucci films but Mm -hmm. it's especially true of this one when I uh, when I logged in on Letterboxd, I saw a clip from or a, a piece from Neil Bodor where he called he compared it to Journey in Italy, which I was like, well, okay, we're done here because <laughs> that's the perfect point of comparison. It really does feel like Bertolucci wading in the same terrain because it is, in a weird way, a very spiritually inclined film, mm-hmm. and it is very interested in the idea of sort of manifesting a spiritual crisis outwardly and doing it with against this backdrop of Italian culture. And I would say Rossellini's significantly more interested in history and aspects like that. But for Bertolucci, it's, it's just, it's the maximalism of Italian art. It is opera and it is, you know, Renaissance painting. It's just, it's this incredibly big, colorful, vibrant, always moving film, but ultimately it's a very, it's a very small movie about this woman trying to cling to anything and also trying to yoke her, you know, drifting son to her as she's <laughs> in her own way. She's equally lost, but she kind of is forced to find herself by just preventing him from sinking further than he already has. Right. Yeah. It's, I, it's, it's, it's definitely just, it's, it's, difficult to sort of pin down exactly how I feel about about it simply because some of even some of the more random parts have aspects that I like and conversely some of the more integral parts of things that I can't can't stand Mm -hmm. but there's no like it there's a scene that almost remind me of call me by your name with this man in a bar like a a man just randomly drags Joe to a a bar where uh where he gives him an ice cream cone and they're dancing and this is never brought up again the man never comes back like it it it's it's certainly a film that it it's certainly fireworks for the last of eight berlucci films in the festival uh i don't know necessarily what prevented them from bringing bringing him back um but still it's it's an it's an interesting film I, i don't know if necessarily i can bring myself to to really take to it in a in a certain way but i i think 
it, it's certainly sincere. I think more than anything else, it's very sincere yes. in its maximalism. The next film is a retrospective film, uh, another Italian sort of film, but also filmed in English, uh, uh, probably not planned, and but by a French director, John Renoir, very much in his late, late period. This is The Golden Coach, which was shot in Chinachita, uh, but which is set in Peru and features both um, features both Spanish and Italian characters. The film was filmed basically all in English, and the film is about basically this troupe of Commedia dell'arte uh, actors who go to 18th century Peru to essentially find their way in the new world to set to become a traveling group and they arrive in this in this town which is ruled by a viceroy uh and basically it f- details the sort of love or the the love that develops between him and Anna Magnani and she has multiple other suitors vi- vying for her attention including uh, a soldier that she came that came to this to the new world with and also a the local celebrity um bullfighter and it's a this is definitely one of my favorite films of the of the fest of this festival it's it's sort of i haven't really seen any films from this period from certainly from this sort of color period of genre noir and so this was quite a revelation at least for me personally i know it's certainly a very well-known film but in relatively speaking but it just is so vibrant so focused on bringing that sort of communal spirit that comes with with acting but at the same time it's not really a film about the actors per se the actors are mostly used as color to sort of enliven the court scenes that largely dominate the film and the film's all about sort of magnani uh who plays Camilla, her trying to figure out her path. Like each suitor represents a different path for her, a different possibility of of finding not only love, but finding a place, finding a, uh, a role to fill, essentially, for lack of a better term, uh, a very fitting term. Uh, and, I, and I think it is, it, it just has a certain, it has an elegance about it that I really, appreciate that that i really and there are some just magnificent moments that are tied together in this large tapestry it, they are very much operate on their own but it's very much integrated within the whole like there are multiple performances as you might expect but they always feel like they feel integral to to the operation of of the plot and it it's a film that just has so much life to it for lack of a better term yeah i didn't get a chance to rewatch this um for this but i had seen it before and it's so fascinating to get to this period of renoir the only other one i think of this time that i've seen is french can can mm-hmm. um but it's incredibly fascinating to me that you know renoir is basically his reputation or his legacy is predicated on these incredibly politically astute humanist dramas uh like the rules of the game or uh in which mm-hmm. is 
granted a satire, but it's also significantly more somber than something like this uh, or uh, The Grand Illusion. And this is basically a film that's just pure formalism. Like the, the, <laughs> the plot is so, it's not threadbare at all, but it is basically, it exists just to set up this incredibly dynamic visual display. And it's this sort of love letter to the theater because it's all of the stage design is very theatrical. It's very obviously false and it's very two dimensional, but the geometry of it is so perfect. And he advances everything in it purely in visual terms. And he's just navigating all these romantic entanglements almost entirely through angles and visuals. And it reminds me a lot actually of Johnny Toe's romantic comedies. Uh. Mm -hmm. uh just the idea of advancing a plot and even advancing comedy as much through these incredibly complex yet in very easily legible compositions and movements as it is anything to do with dialogue right i think the there are essentially two two set different sets of of interactions that take that are predicated on doors mm -hmm. and the swinging of doors and the people located behind them one is with the viceroy trying to balance both trying to balance the sort of the court meeting that he's leading camilla who's waiting in one room on the right side and an, another and another possible love interest for him on the left side of, of the courtroom so he's just constantly moving back between the doors and then later on camilla's balancing different each of these different men who are located behind other doors who then encounter each other. And then the soldier and the bullfighter have a, have a sword fight that, that is moving through these rooms until they both of course crash into the room that Camilla and the Viceroy are in. And it's just all these, all this business, all of the sort of obvious, but very, very fitting notions of, of acting both within both, both within the actual theater and also in in these roles and these court roles that these people have been have chosen and then thus have been forced into or have or have been forced upon them and there's a like you said the sort of the there is that sort of falseness or theatricality to the sets and the film even begins and ends with the sort of the essentially like the grand staircase that the grand staircase within the the court which is on a stage with showing the proscenium and everything and this it, the film begins and ends with this but it's just so involved it's so it takes the the eponymous golden coach is a perfect example of this because it even though it's this almost ludicrously gaudy sort of thing uh in, in terms of its de decoration and in its cost it's given all these different meanings uh based on the perceiver and i think that really is that really nails down this the multiplicity of perspectives that never feel really shortchanged within within the film obviously it's comedic but at the same time they each character is given their own own sense of uh sense of motivation and and interest yeah and in that sense it is pure renoir even though it feels like such a departure from all of his pre-war films, like the idea that every single aspect of it is tied so heavily to perspective. It, 
it, the, the through line between it and his classic work is incredibly fascinating to me. And same with French Can Can. Like, the, I think this came first. No. Right. Uh, actually, yes, it uh, did. Because uh, I think yes, French Can Can was 55. And mm-hmm. there's a third one that I forget that kind of mm-hmm. bunched together. Eleanor yeah. Man. Yeah. Um, and this one's from 1952, I should say. And it's to me, it just feels like this incredible bridging work between his late period and his classic period. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely need to get around to some of the other ones, especially from this period, but it definitely feels like that sort of platonic ideal of a late film, like that, just that sort of mastery, that sort of sense of sense of play and sense of, 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 I guess, humanism in, in terms of its, each of its actors and each of its characters and the setting too. It's just, it, it all clicks together in this wonderfully light, but obviously can be very impactful. The next film is the Bugs Bunny slash Roadrunner movie. It was <laughs> compiled by Chuck Jones out of a series, out of a lot of the Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies shorts that he had directed. Um, it is more or less a glorified clip show of a film. There are a handful of complete shorts, but a lot of it is mainly just shortened clips out of various uh, Looney Tunes films. And even even taking that into consideration, I had so much fun with this. It was just a reminder that Looney Tunes are some of the greatest American films <laughs> ever made. Um, and I had a whole new appreciation because it's been a long time since I've actually watched any Looney Tune or Mary or Mary Melody shorts. I forgot how genuinely advanced and even borderline experimental the animation was compared to the larger budgets that Disney had. Um, like one of the shorts that's included is Hairway to the Stars, the Marvin the Martian short. And I spent the whole time just marveling that obviously all animation is a matter of perspective and forcing you, your brain to think that two-dimensional uh, objects are have three-dimensional depth. But that entire short is set against pure negative space, just complete black void, and everything in it is basically just a rectangle or a very bizarre, spindly, angular walkway. <laughs> but the way that they intersect is so fascinating to me. I just meant, I, I rewatched that single segment three times because I just couldn't believe how <laughs> complex it was. Um, and they're still funny. Like I've seen all of these shorts before. I don't think there was a single one that I hadn't previously seen, but I laughed as hard as I ever have at all of them. Um, I don't. I honestly don't even know what to say. I I could have literally rewatched the entire thing the second it was over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's really great. I, I it's it's sort of interesting to talk about because so along with these sort of uh, so. Basically, the first half, two thirds of the film are these Bugs Bunny or other shorts, mm-hmm. and then the and then the last third is a super cut of Roadrunner and Wiley e. Coyote shorts, and we'll, we'll get to that. But the uh, and also uh, interspersed throughout the are are these sort of segments like a faux documentary of Bugs Bunny giving a tour of his home and talking about the about some of the characters talking about the actual animators and their portraits of people uh, like 
Chuck Jones, Mike Maltese, Mel Blanc, and which is, I think that these scenes maybe could sort of like they're maybe not necessarily the most most wildly exciting, but I think that they give a sort of nice summation of his personality. I think they they carry that out well, but it is definitely almost exclusively a a vehicle for these shorts. Mm-hmm. And I think and I'd seen definitely I think about half, maybe a little bit more of uh, of these shorts and. I think that the the selection is almost is kind of fascinating in of itself. Particularly, I think that you could really call this film the Bugs Bunny Daffy Duck Roadrunner movie because of how much Daffy is in it. Like the after Hairway to the Stars, which is the first one, the the next three shorts are all don't have Bugs Bunny at all. The Duck Dodgers in the twenty fourth half century, Robin Hood Daffy and Duck Amuck. And obviously, I'm not going to complain because Duck Amuck is top 25 all time for me I, th- I think it's one of the great films ever made mm-hmm. so i'm not definitely not going to complain about its inclusion in here uh, but it's it's just interesting and i th- i do think that uh i definitely vary in my opinion on some of these shorts i think that the sort of uh double bill of for sentimental reasons and long-haired hair is a bit it doesn't quite work for me but then right after that is what's opera doc so it, it gets redeemed uh and so it, it's just fascinating it's fascinating into construction it's not it's not a short film not a long film like it's it's around 100 minutes which is definitely like i feel like some of the some of the ones that have been shortened even slightly could have been extended especially operation rabbit which i adore and which is which provides a, a bridge from the bugs bunny to the uh, roadrunner segments but I don't know why it's as shortened as it is. I, I think that there's it cuts out two, maybe three of Wiley Coyote's schemes, which I think really give the short its life. Uh, but that being said, I think that the amount of love that it gives to these, to Chuck Jones's, like you said, both his sense of space and his sense of comedy, I think really get exemplified throughout. Yeah. It's interesting. The the, um, the interstitial moments that are like the, the new animated moments that are uh, bugs hanging around uh, a Frank Lloyd Wright parody mansion that, <laughs> and basically more or less acting like Hugh Hefner. Like he's got a robe, <laughs> and his whole tone is very laid back. And it's funny how easily that translates from this children's cartoon like to that kind of image. Um, but so much of it, and, and I almost felt watching it because all of the shorts that are sourced were directed by Jones. It almost right. feels like he is basically subtle, not so subtly positioning himself as a genius. It <laughs> just feels like this entire movie exists to basically remind people of how good he was. And I respect that <laughs> flex because the whole time you're just thinking like the sense of movement, the sense of space, the color, the, I mean, I know he didn't write the shorts, but the, the um written jokes are good the visual jokes are incredible and i just really love the idea of him kind of sort of making a fantasia knockoff because all of the (laughs) all of the in-between moments kind of felt like a bugs bunny version of the um mc parts of fantasia so instead of it being this kind of 
very oh we're very artistic look we have a real orchestra and everything it's again just bugs making wisecracks um <laughs> but i i as far as basically just putting yourself out there and saying i've assembled basically my cv for you to have and the fact that it got programmed in nif is <laughs> so entertaining to me <laughs> yeah and there's also i forgot to mention but there's sort of at the beginning before or towards the beginning there's a sort of introduction of like complete with a star wars cr crawl parody <laughs> yes. sort, of, sort of caveman like a history of how they came to comedy like they, they actually show footage of which mel uh, books of the flat kiss. out ripped off for history of the world part one there are some jokes <laughs> in that caveman section that i distinctly remember appearing a year later in a history of the world part one <laughs> yeah and there's also the even show many silent film chase sequences, including plenty of Buster Keaton, mm. which is, you know, very much a, a sort of like, like you said, a positioning of Jones as, as uh, of himself as a genius, which is warranted. And the film was actually initially called The Great American Chase, uh, but but the names were put in for for recognizability, and for and the to get to the sort of Roadrunner parts it's essentially eight, 18 minutes of just all, all of these different uh all these different gags from and from from the roadrunner wiley coyote cartoons and i was really i think this is where really the film like solidified itself as more than a clip show because they are really well put together i think that the they're they're definitely going for sequencing various connected shorts together or connected gags together like there's there are a couple of ones where he tries to use a bow and then he gets tangled up and then slingshot and there are these two super suit ones where he puts on like a, a batman uh costume uh, <laughs> and like a superman sort of knockoff costume but then also there are these sort of other gags that are interspersed throughout like they're like there's a sort of rock catapult that at first, you know, falls backwards and then gradually escalates from there within the within the presentation of this sequence. And they and the one that maybe made me laugh the hardest is the one where there's this wall that that Wiley Coyotes try to raise up. So as right before Roadrunner runs into it, he uh, the wall will raise this iron wall will raise up, and it doesn't work. And then six minutes later, as as uh, while the coyotes had like he has made himself go faster, then the wall comes back and then he just runs into it. It's, and it's it's a collection certainly. It's a collection of of as much as it can fit in within these uh, eighteen minutes. And it ends with these sort of two longer ones: the um, earthquake pills and the rocket sled. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it it. The, the pleasures certainly are depending on how much you can appreciate this much Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote, but I can certainly appreciate a lot of it. So. so can I. There's something to be said about foregrounding the fact that the Wiley Coyote Roadrunner shorts are all basically the same in a way that mm -hmm. the Bugs Bunny and, D and Dabby Duck ones are not. There's so much variety in those, and their stylistic and subject matter palette is so broader Whereas Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote is literally the exact same thing 
every single time. And instead of trying to dig around that, he just completely foregrounds it. But like you said, he assembles it to basically be the ultimate Roadrunner uh, <laughs> extended short. It, it really does work as its own self-contained short film, even though it's piecing together like what like almost a dozen or maybe even more. It, it, <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of clips put together. And by it, there's such a high risk involved when making basically a supercut like that, that it's just, just the gags, not, none of the lead up. But when you, but seeing it like that made me realize how efficient those shorts were at just setting everything up because there's no, there's no information lost on any of these jokes. There's nothing missing. <laughs> But there's also not enough downtime for you to get bored or to feel like or to or to feel like you're watching the same thing over and over and over again. It's I I, I agree. As much as I think the Bugs Bunny and the Daffy Duck shorts are artistically more accomplished, I think this kind of gigantic hodgepodge makeshift short is sort of where it becomes its own beast. Right. Yeah. I think that it it manages both of those aspects well i think that it it's i wouldn't ne even necessarily say it's trying to cater to multiple sensibilities i think that it's all very clearly jones and his sort of sense for movement his sense for comedy and that's that i, I think that's certainly some of the great certainly animated filmmaking and, and comedy comedy comedic filmmaking so yeah it's it's a it's quite a wonderful film or, you know, like it's, it's sort of difficult to exactly classify it in that mm -hmm. way simply because so much of it is, you know, duck amok pre presented in full, but I will not complain about that. So it, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful film. The next film is a sort of departure, a surprising departure. Uh, this is Ken Loach's blackjack, which far from his sort of, uh, social realist sort of films for uh, that might not be the most accurate to put it, but this is a period children's adventure film uh, based on a the novel by Leon Garfield. And it's essentially deals with the sort of relationship or uh, that, or, or sort of uneasy relationship and friendship formed between the eponymous blackjack uh played by Jean Frenval, this sort of enormous six foot six uh, Frenchman who murdered a local in a drunken in a drunken brawl and who escapes the hangman's noose and and Tolly played by Stephen Hurst uh, who's a, a young boy just who who wants to become an apprentice but he's not exactly sure for what and he's sort of dragged along and as as Blackjack makes his, his escape and they run into this 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 young uh young possibly insane girl named Belle uh and essentially the f the film just deals with their sort of travels their their adventures and it's i i quite liked it i was i was quite surprised and i'd say this as someone who's who's sort of un i, I don't necessarily uh glom onto Loach's typical typical interests all that much but i think that where he sort of locates himself where uh the primary interest for him is in the sort of rendering of these locales of these sort of 
ways of living, especially the sort of traveling, traveling fare that they that they fall into, and um, and there's and I, I think that especially what what really made the film for me, and I think you can of course see this in something like Kess, but I think it's even more evident here is his ability to to empathize with and depict the sort of childlike the the, the children's uh, point of view. I think that both Stephen Hurst and Louise Cooper, who plays Belle, give absolutely like wonderful performances in terms of of seeming like very credibly credibly childlike, very very naive and uh, and un and naive concerning the world around them, but they never feel false. They never feel histrionic or anything like that. It all feels integrated within the characters. And I think that, that that's really what what I love, well, what I like a lot about the film. I don't know about necessarily the development of the narrative that much. I think that it sort of makes some strange turns, especially in sort of placing Tolly's storyline along with this other with this other boy Hatch played by Andrew Bennett who forms sort of like a dark mirror to his to to his sort of pursuits like another form of the hustling lifestyle in which he's constantly blackmailing two different two separate parties um in order to get get more money to um in exchange for trying to bring back Bell to either the herb father or the asylum but i think it I think it's much more in the sort of scene-to-scene -scene interactions, especially between the children, and they have a wonderful sort of. The the film never feels overly sentimental to me, which I which I like. I think it has this sort of mild sent sentiment, especially towards the end. But as is, I think it's uh, it, it certainly has much of interest. This was sort of the more. I think this was the most surprising film of the slate for me just because I don't have a huge degree of familiarity with Loach because I'm kind of in the same boat. I mm -hmm. sometimes like what he's going after and sometimes I just don't find him to be a very interesting filmmaker. Um, right. But this is sort of, in a weird way, I think this might be a better showcase for his strengths than his typical kind of film because, mm -hmm. as you said, it's very realistically observed for what ultimately feels like a magical realist sort of mm. children's story. Um, it's almost funny to me that it's called Blackjack because Blackjack becomes such, he becomes very easily the third most important person of this trio <laughs> very quickly. Right. Um, right. <laughs> but I really enjoyed the extent to which I would, first of all, I thought it looked great and I mm. thought it looked it reminded me a lot of the early, like in terms of its look and feel, it reminded me a lot of the early, early Terry Gilliam adventures like oh, Munchausen or Time Bandits. Um, but it is shot through with this very keen eye for detail for the social strata of that kind of society of um, this kind of Dickensian mix. Because I, I also didn't really like the mirror subplot it with hatch right. and tolly um but i did kind of like the idea of this blatant social climber character who's willing to throw anyone under the bus to get <laughs> ahead in this society because that's the only way a person like that advances 
Um, and even then, he knows he's really not going anywhere. All he can do is just maybe get a couple of coins out of it. Um, mm -hmm. I thought it was really funny. I really didn't expect the Ken Loach <laughs> film to be that funny. <laughs> um, but I, this to me was the film, I kind of just put this on expecting, all right, it's a Ken Loach film. It's going to be kind of dry and whatever. And I ended up having a lot of fun with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it has the sort of, it has the spirit down more than anything else. The, the sort of spirit of going on an unknown adventure. It reminded me of, of one of my, of a white, widely beloved film, including by me of uh, Fritz Lane's Moonfleet in, in terms of the way it deals with the, with this strange mentor figure sort of quasi father figure who has sort of unclear intentions unclear sort of modes of behavior and i think that that while blackjack is very much a background character for much of the film i think he always he adds that sort of uh he he adds that sort of feeling nicely to it like this sort of strange uneasy presence amid the rest of the film that i think adds a nice bit of ambiguity to it uh yeah, and more more than anything, it's just about the rhythms, about the about the sort of day to day living that that Tolly experiences throughout throughout the film. It's yeah, it exists very much in within its sort of eighteenth century time period. It very much feels of that time in the way it progresses, and and it's. It's sort of difficult to really encapsulate because of that. It's just it's it's so completely different from the other loaches that at least I'm aware of, uh, and so it's 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 hard to hard to really nail exactly besides that societal societal element his interests. But for what is apparent there, I think it's quite uh, quite fascinating. I agree. The next film is Wise Blood, which is. John Huston's adaptation of the novel by Flannery O'Connor. Um, I'm a huge fan of Flannery O'Connor. I did a whole course on her in high school. Um, I watched this years ago and was very curious to see how that style would translate. And I think this might be after maybe John Huston's last film, which is an adaptation of the James Joyce story, The Dead. I think this might be his strongest literary adaptation, which is saying something, because mm. I think he's probably my pick for the best overall literary adapter of cinema. Um, because this film, this film kind of epitomizes what I like about how John Huston approaches his adaptations, because on the one hand, I think it's very well observed to Southern rhythms. It was shot very close to Flannery O'Connor's hometown, I believe this was shot in Macon, and she lived in Milledgeville. Um, mm -hmm. But the book was written in 1952, and Houston updates it to a post-Watergate, post-Vietnam America, and it translates very, very well. Uh, O'Connor's <laughs> very bleak sensibility obviously fits uh, very well. The, the story is about a um, about a preacher named Hazel Motes who is a kind of nihilistic anti-preacher. He uh, sets up his own sort of cult called the Church Without Christ, and 
the story is very loose. I think it's as much a reckoning with his sort of internal demons as it is a commentary on sort of the the sin of the world. Um, I was very surprised. I find O'Connor a very concrete writer. Her details are very sharply observed. Her methodology, even though her stories are defined by these sudden, lurching, terrifying uh, pivots into violence, I think overall mm -hmm. she's a very realistically-minded author. And this film is shot in a very sort of hazy, late 70s um, mm -hmm. way. It... I had to remind myself, I had to double check to see if Vilmos Zygmunt lens did because it has that Zygmunt <laughs> kind of gauzy look. Um, it was it was lensed by Jerry Fisher, but um, I think this is an amazing film. I think Brad Dourif was perfectly cast as Hazel Moes because he just radiates Absolutely. that intense, that just intensity of... Um, it's belief, but it's not belief. And I think he has mm -hmm. to, he has to walk a very tight rope uh, while portraying this guy who is very committed to what is ultimately an ideology of pure nihilism, which is a which is a complete contradiction in terms. But I think he pulls it off amazingly. I love this film. I think it's I think it's one of my it's one of my favorite book adaptations of all time. Yeah, I I really love this film as well. Uh, of course, was very, very tickled by the sort of Georgia setting, like the very clearly, like, I actually don't know if it's necessarily set in Georgia, but like, it feels like it has that sort of rhythm and that energy, which I think is very key to the way it it plays out. And I think that it's, I haven't read the book and I'm curious to see exactly how it fits in within its particular milieu, because I think it really works well in this sort of late 70s milieu because it's I think even the film actually doesn't strike me as being that much about religion specifically or about mm -hmm. Christianity I think it's much more about the like various ways of life various ways of of obsession and delusion within this post set this late 70s context and the, the sort of disillusionment that people experience and how they try to try to um, fix it whether it be religion or whether it be um, uh, like tr finding, finding a man or, or, or hustling people like b by, by hiring other or hiring fictitious preachers so you can get more money <laughs> or, or dressing up in a, dressing up in a, a ape suit. I mean, it, it manages like it, I, as I understand the, it's almost like a, the, the book is at times more of like a vignette or more of like a, almost short story sort of style yeah it feels a lot like um because obviously she was more known for short stories it feels almost like an anthology of short stories based around the central character than it does a sort of a to b narrative mm -hmm. right yeah and i think that fits in well with the way it seems to glide from storyline to storyline there's a dorif is certainly the center and he's amazing but you know there's so many wonderful actors just just doing just doing their thing in separate parts like you have harry dean stanton uh you have amy wright you have ned ned Beatty, and they all they all feel like they fit even if they might not have that many scenes like they each have their own presence their their own anchoring anchoring 
sense of self within within their scenes, which is often hard to pin down. It's because simply because it's so foreign for almost foreign to to ways of normal interaction because you have Stanton who's masquerading as a blind preacher doing this sort of bemused almost hazy sort of uh, set, uh, presentation whereas Amy Amy Wright is almost frightfully sort of intensely fixated on on Durer's character and it's yeah it it feels like a, a lot of the interactions they feel like very, they're there's a certain they almost feel pragmatic in a certain way like they, mm-hmm. they know exactly what they want and they'll use any means however bizarre to get them uh but that doesn't necessarily encapsulate what's so strange and so so fast so invigorating about the film yeah is because uh, there's so many little things that Houston does that I find stylistically a hum- a huge departure from O'Connor's writing, like the the hallucination that uh, Durif has of the coffin and all that, like and it, the, the complete Oedipal nightmare, like that is such a that is such a wild departure from O'Connor's style. But then I think he completely nails her overarching sense of kind of Catholic revulsion of a very Protestant uh, nation (laughs) and especially Georgia being a very Baptist and Protestant uh, uh, area. Um, I get a real kick out of the opening montage of all the evangelical writings on everything, including a Dairy Queen (laughs) uh, board. (laughs) Um, but he, I think he, I think he really understands what that book, and I think maybe just by extension, O'Connor's entire uh, bibliography is going for just the idea of American Christianity being so spiritually empty. Uh, there's a scene where he's in a cab and he's talking about how he doesn't believe in anything. He's just, you know, preaching his nihilistic message, and the cabbie just goes, "Man, that's the problem with preachers. They've all gotten too good to believe in anything." Which I think is such a hilarious <laughs> yet like very acidic and very sharply observed critique of just the entire American outlook on religion. Um <laughs> and it's stuff like that is so funny even though the film itself and the story that's based on it's just so intense and it just radiates this just very grim energy, but there's so many moments of that really acidic black comedy that I love. Right. Yeah. I mean, the entire f- film culminates with this denouement between Dorif who's blinded himself and is wrapping barbed wire and walking on rocks and his landlady, which is like the, like a totally hellish situation, but it's just so inherently strange that it becomes really quite amusing and like the that that sort of sense just permeates the whole film i had somehow forgotten about that ending <laughs> and then when i saw it i just went wow paul schrader really owes <laughs> so <many> loyalty. <laughs> yeah I, it's yeah it, and houston like apart from the sort of tonal sense of it it, it like it feels very punchy just like the direction like it just feels very like when when it's not going for that deliberately dreamlike sense with like his the the dream sequences where Houston himself plays his grand his grandfather mm-hmm. as a as this fire and brimstone preacher, like the just the sense of letting these interactions play out 
while finding these interesting angles. It's it's, it's hard to describe. Like it just from the very opening, which is uh, which is Dorif walking through his childhood home, which is now abandoned. Like it has a great sense for for his sense of his sense of motion. The the like just just the way in which Dorif moves, which, which is very key for key for the film it's like it's such a faulknerian touch and an, an otherwise o'connor <laughs> adaptation <laughs> yeah it's yeah it's a really really wonderful film be very quiet i'm hunting rabbits <laughs> The next film is Short Memory, directed by Eduardo de Gregorio, uh, who we last saw with Sarai. This is his second of two films in the main slate. And this is definitely a, a different sort of film from, from Sarai, which was much more in the sort of, I guess you could say, Rivet, locked or um, haunted house, I guess you could say, or cer- certainly estate-based film. This one's a much more one much more focused on on the on history on the on the weight of french collaboration and 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 the assimilation of of nazis and the film basically follows Nathalie Bay who plays this unesco interpreter judith who's assigned to research this uh this this french author named marcel jacour uh, who was a sort of key figure in cultural relations between france and latin america and who in this in this framing was the first translator of, of Borges. And and quickly she discovers his mysterious death in this car accident and his involvement in researching uh in 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 researching this mysterious figure uh named uh named Andros. And Jacques should should say is Amusing, very amusingly, but wonderfully played by Jacques Rivette, and his wife Irene is played by Ermine Carriguez from uh, from Duel, uh, which is a, a wonderful touch. And he, and unsurprisingly, he's a wonderful actor. And the and from there, through her from her arch, heavy archival research, she runs in. She keeps intersecting paths with this man Barilla, played um, played by Philippe Lirotard, and through a, a, a series of flashbacks who are narrated by by uh by successive people including Burla the this sort of network is revealed of basically 
um, this man Andros, who also goes by the name Man or Yeder, um, working with with Genevieve, played by Blue Ogier, in order to to provide passports to this fictional Latin American country named Gorana, uh, and at the same time, sometimes for mercenary reasons, they they sell out these Nazis um, fleeing Germany to to people from various governments that are interested in capturing them or killing them. And the film generally, and the film also intersects with the personal pasts of, pasts of, of Judith and Barilla. Uh, Barilla's parents were, were uh, two of the pe- people who were sold out and killed on, on their plane over from, um, from Europe to Latin America and Judith is is Jewish and is trying to reckon with her her um with that heritage and the film I it's I think it's quite incredible I think it definitely has it it feels of a piece in a certain way with with something like Sarai but it's more it's much less playful much more focused on the sense of paranoia developing within uh, of of this paranoia bleeding into the present, basically of the sort of sins of a nation being being rediscovered and inflicted upon upon the individuals that comprise it, and it and it has just this strange atmosphere. It has this strange progression where these flashbacks come up unexpectedly, and sometimes there are even these sort of Alemane-esque edits to two shots that you'd seen before, but inserted into a completely different context before coming back to the present. And the, and I, I think it really understands that sense of, of dislocation of, of uncertainty that, that really characterizes the film. This, I'm not going to say this is the best thing that played at this festival, but out of the stuff that I had never seen before, this is the thing that excited me the most when I watched mm. it. I was completely caught off guard by it, even though obviously if you've seen any Jacques Rivette films, even the ones that uh, uh, De Gregorio did not write, you have some primer for how this goes, but this is so tonally distinct from a Rivette film, which tends to be very playful and kind of takes the paranoid thriller and sort of turns it on its ear. This kind of reminded me of taking a sentence and putting it into, into Google Translate and then putting it, putting that <laughs> translation back into Google Translate to put it back into English. Because <laughs> it was, it's like if Rivette and if Rivette took paranoid thrillers and sort of made something kind of magical and whimsical out of them, this takes that and then puts it right back into the language of paranoid thrillers. Um, there's so much that went over my head because it's so dense. It's only, um, it's like a hundred minutes long, but so much is compacted into it. It really does feel like a giant sprawling seventies Rivette film that's been crunched down into a very manageable length. Um, but it is, it's feel it. There, I, all of this shouts out to Borges. I really enjoyed, um, <laughs> the, I love the opening is her translating a guy who's talking about how you have to see, you know, you must control your fate and man is basically the master of his destiny. And then the rest of the film is basically just about the accumulated weight of history and how 
it's more or less impossible to break out from underneath it. Um, it it's such an unsettling movie in ways that I can't fully describe. Uh, this is, I think, you sent me a copy of this with along with some other rips to watch for this. This is the one thing that I immediately saved on my external hard drive and basically <laughs> labeled return to. Um, I will. I can't wait to rewatch this because I loved it, but there was so much that I just knew I was getting lost in because I just focused so heavily on the atmosphere of it. This really does in a lot of ways feel almost like a horror film, the way that he shoots a lot of abandoned spaces that uh, Natalie Bay walks through. That one scene where she's on the lower level of a house rooting around and you know that someone's upstairs (laughs) and they come down and catch her. And the way he shoots it is very matter-of-factly, but it's very angled and shot in this deep focus. And just something about the, the way that he frames it is so unnerving when you know that she's going to get caught and she knows that she's going to get caught and she basically does nothing to hide. And it, it, it sent my heart rate just spiking, even though really nothing comes out of it in that moment, at least it's just, it's such a well-directed film. Um, I, about halfway through, I just started loudly just to know, just in my room to no one in particular demanding (laughs) that, you know, criterion or arrow or Mm -hmm. any other distributor like that, this desperately needs a home video release. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, it, certainly that applies to other Dick Gregorio films. One film, which showed in New York on a, on a print, a number or last year, Aspern has, is nowhere to be found anywhere else. Uh, and which is, which at least for my good friend, Evan considers it one of the best films he's ever seen. And so I've obviously, yes, please. Uh, distribution companies get on Dicker Grail. But yeah, there's it. So much of it is rooted in this sort of illusion, even though there are these flashbacks and uh, which often show very concrete actions like, like Ogier and, and Andros betraying, uh, betraying these, these former Nazis, even though those are depicted in very clear detail, the sort of import of them, the sort of, the, the way in which they all fit together is still left as something of a mystery. Mm-hmm. I think that it, it, the, uh, the sort of crux of the, the finale is that, that Andros or, or man is known as this widely respected industrialist and who is, who cannot really be connected to the, to this mercenary, this, or uh, this collab collaboration, um, Simply because he's he's just able to cover it up so so easily. It's almost like a Langian sort of figure in in that way, and it it's it's perhaps the clearest gesture towards like this sort of very real present issue of of these forces being contained or being transfigured in, into other ways by nations who happen to need these skills to be utilized. It managed it, it's it's unsettling in that way. It, it just feels so directly connected to, to the present time. Yeah. It, it never feels like it, even though it has, even though it feels like in some ways it exists in another world, in other ways, it feels very, very, um, it, it feels very rooted, which is, which is what's terrifying about yeah, it. Yeah. As hazy of a film as it is, I think it's a very 
poignant message about the ease with which fascists get rehabilitated, which, mm-hmm. as you say, is such a dominant uh, theme now as we start to transition. And it's this right. idea that there will always be in these developed societies, because um, not even just capitalists. I mean, there were plenty of repatriated East German scientists. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's this idea that any kind of power will very easily um, reabsorb these supposedly irreconcilable uh, singular people who just exist outside of any nor- any sense of normalcy. Is just the idea that you'll turn around and not only will they not be prosecuted, they will basically, they will be your boss's boss's boss. Like, it's not even just a matter of reintegrating and slipping invisible. They can hide in plain sight and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. Yeah, and should mention the sublime last scene, which is of Judith watching a composite sketch of her printing out very slowly on on television. And, like, the, the film ends on that. It's just... It just prints it slow, slowly, like you know it'll be pretty much an exact match. But the way it manage it slowly prints it out, and then it and then it cuts, then it uh, cuts to cuts out. It it just it it encapsulates all of those those worries, all of those uh, all of those anxieties so so perfectly. Yeah. The next film is Angivera, a Hungarian film directed by. Paul Gabor uh, and this is a it's sort of difficult to exactly pin this film down it's about a about a nurse um, who is who who essentially grew up at this hospital and and she's an orphan and she a- after speaking out against the the conditions there under the under the administration there she is selected as being a sort of exceptional exceptional thinker more more than anything and she's chosen to become a um to to go to this sort of school this um in order to receive a proper education which she never had and the film essentially takes place throughout the throughout her three months there and the and during during the course she um most notably gets into this affair with her with her married group group leader or group instructor um and it's 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 hard to pin down because i can't really quite get a sense of the actual politics the actual like perspective that that gabor has about the um about this communist uh th- this communist school basically like i i can't really get a sense of necessarily whether he's condemning it or or he's or he's supportive of it of it, and I think this is largely because I, because Vera is the is she always feels opaque, even though she's in every scene and and her and her the actress that plays her Veronica Pap is quite strong. It's she she never feels like it like her her sort of motivations her sort of interests seem to largely depend on whatever she's a scene she's in like it never feels like quite settled which is perhaps fitting for a film that's about education to a certain extent but at the same time it doesn't necessarily render those in a way that feels like a definitive development or anything like that i think that the thing that really 
that does work for me is Gabor's sense of it, of his direction, which is actually I think quite strong, very fluid. Like there there are these long tracking shots across like a, a classroom or um or or like and especially as a, he has a nice feel for faces within these tracking shots, which are often of these close ups, just a stream of faces rushing past each other, and I think that's more and also a nice sense of shadow and and the and and long shots so it's it's a strange film for me i think that it certainly helps watching it on a rather nice restoration um which even though it was sort of a dvd file it actually looked quite beautiful uh, and it goes to show the power of restoration of even a a flawed but interesting film it's so it, it's I, I think it's not without merit, certainly, but I think that I had a tr- I had trouble with it, not in a bad way. So it can be sort of productive, but it seems maybe a little bit too uh, too opaque for its own good. Well, sadly, this is one of the ones I did not get to, so I can't, <laughs> I can't contribute a contrasting opinion. Uh, and I should also note that there are sort of these that both. I sort of seeing that sort of encapsulates this problem are these scenes of where, where party administrators come to the school to ask for scenes of self criticism, and and it's at this where Vera Vera brings up voluntarily this affair that she's been having, and she seems to totally reject it to demonstrate her commitment to the cause, and it's it feels like this strange. Like it feels like exact. It feels, I like I can't understand exactly what what the thought process is. Whether she is genuinely feeling this and feeling this dedication, or if it's almost born like out of a fear of of some kind of the of the of the of the party. So I it it's it's hard for me to to grasp it. I uh, but I think there are certainly uh, there there are certainly interesting elements to it. It's also hard to grasp sometimes. Uh, this is going to be an issue that comes up with some of the other films that we're going to talk about, but the legitimate fear of the actual filmmaker um, mm-hmm. to cover certain topics. Uh, that's all. Whenever I watch an older or film from you know the Cold War era about things like this from countries like this, I always wonder to what extent uh, even a relatively uh, defiant film can express itself right uh the next film is Werner herzog's remake of fw murnau's nosferatu uh this has been one of my favorite films since i first saw it almost a decade ago it is i think as much a tribute to german expressionism as it is any attempt to remake the core dracula story um as such, I think that Nos- uh, Herzog basically takes the literal German settings. He famously shot on a lot of the same locations that Murnau used. And I think <laughs> in the process, he basically takes the original story of Dracula and translates it from being sort of the culmination of Victorian Gothic literature to being much more about German culture. It's much more rooted, I think, in contemporaneous German romanticism 
in a lot of the philosophical and artistic movements that would have been prevalent in Germany around the same time that the novel was written. Uh, obviously, Klaus Kinski plays Nosferatu <laughs> in probably, I think, his best performance. Um, mm. A very... Even, even though he is playing a, you know, gnarled, hellish, undead <laughs> monster, I think it's in a lot of ways his most humane performance. Um, I think he lends an air of tragedy to it that is absolutely not in the 1922 version, which I think is much more malignant and very, uh, well, problematic in its uh, imagery. Um, I think this depiction of Nosferatu is much more cursed. I think this might be one of the first vampire films to really dig into the idea of the vampire as victim as much as monster. Um, mm -hmm. It's very interested, I think, in the idea of a creature who is basically cut off from all human feeling yet must live forever. Um, Bruno Gans plays the Jonathan Harker figure in, I think, an even more low-key performance to further contrast from how low, how underplayed I think Kinski uh, does the vampire. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly not as wayward as Keanu Reeves' <laughs> performance as the same, <laughs> but um, I noticed that the biggest, I think the biggest narrative change from... Uh, the novel Dracula is that the Harker figure is really not is not saved in the end by uh, right. his wife's sacrifice. His wife in this film, played by Isabel Anjani, um, in a downright painterly performance, she looks like every <laughs> she looks like the platonic ideal of the damsel in distress in a monster film. Just very mm. wide eyed and pale skinned, um, but in Dracula. Um, her M Mina's sort of quasi sacrifice redeems everyone, whereas in this one, basically the vampire is vanquished, but God, but Harker becomes the next vampire, so the cycle continues. Which I thought was a very subtle but very meaningful uh, transition or uh, change from the original source. Yeah, I I, I certainly liked it. I, Herzog's in a strange place for me where I like pretty much everything I see, but I don't necessarily, like, I find it difficult to fully latch on. I think this is definitely a case. It's certainly, like, I think more than anything, it's really a triumph of atmosphere, of getting that that uncanny sense that where it feels very, very much this otherworldly, almost inhumane film at times like uh, though, though you say like quite rightly that Kinski gives much more depth and much more much more like, like he he makes his Nosferatu much more felt than say Max Schreck's I think that it's still like it simply like largely because of his makeup and his fingernails and so on and so forth but also just the like just the whole Kinski thing like he he just feels in he he just feels completely not human in a way that works for the film obviously but it's, it's just like it's it it gives a certain distance which i think the film encourages it to some extent but also 
like you said, brings brings back his it brings back the humanity to a certain extent. I think that also just the way he's able to her talk is able to find wonderful ways find really striking ways of bringing out his bring out the haunted atmosphere like there's a there's this one recurring shot within the first dinner scene where where it's pitch black except for this one light that's on Nosferatu's face on, on Dracula's face that it's as it's it's pos- one of the most striking things in the film and also he's able to inject these these moments that bring out the terror like this one extended shot where after Har- Harker cuts his cuts his finger where he's just slowly retreating backwards as Dracula is slowly moving forward to to um to to drink his blood like those it somehow it manages to draw these draw these feelings these uncanny feelings out which i think i, I think that some the parts that don't revolve around around Lucy, Jonathan, or Dracula are the weakest things for me, and like especially the scenes with uh, with Renfield, which just don't don't really work for me. Uh, and I do prefer the the Murnau version. I think for though it's been a while since I've seen it, I think I just prefer it for maintaining more of that atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I think that the Van Helsing character also feels like a strange inclusion because he's deliberately positioned as this um this more scientifically minded character who isn't able to who only becomes the vampire hunter when it's far too late uh but yeah it's it's i I certainly like it it and it has a wonderful sense of iconography to it it's especially I, i i love that last shot of of harker riding away in the desert Yes, it makes me think of yeah. the uh, "Got a Light" episode of Twin Peaks, <laughs> him just disappearing into the horizon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what's impressive, like to me about it is, as much as I say it, I think it's a tribute to German artistic history. It's really not an expressionistic film, almost at right. all. I think probably the only time I would call it that is the scene that you mentioned of them in the castle where Harker cuts his finger. I think the rest of the time it's very seventies Herzog where it's very keyed <laughs> into the use of nature, this kind of almost docudrama, but the atmosphere is so intense, even above something like Aguirre or um, Fitzcarraldo to me, I think this is easily the best Popol Vuh score that he ever got out of them. It's a great one. Um, mm-hmm. And I love all their scores for him. Um, <laughs> but really, to me, the best musical moment is not even their work. It's when Harker is heading to the castle and mm-hmm. he reaches the foot of whatever imposing mountain that he's got across and Herzog pipes in the opening of Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, which... Mm-hmm. Um, the exact same sound drop the, that uh, Malik would use at the end of the New World, and I almost <laughs> wonder yeah. if he got the idea from it. From the, even though obviously Malik <laughs> is a classical music freak, I almost feel like he might have cribbed it from this, just because it's right. used in almost the exact same fashion of just communicating this massive, <laughs> overwhelming inability to comprehend nature. 
mm-hmm. um, which I think it's funny that you say that about Van Helsing is that is, I think probably the other big change in the text is mm-hmm. making Van Helsing a sort of doubting Thomas who is very reluctantly brought into the vampire myth because he's playing, of course, in like in Herzog terms, he's the man of science who thinks there's an explanation for everything. And only in the end does he accept the idea of the, of the mystery and this horror beyond his comprehension. Um, because I'm honestly kind of in the same boat with you with Herzog. I used to be a huge fan when I was first watching his stuff. And I think he's one of the biggest diminishing returns filmmakers out of anyone considered mostly canonical. But mm. this is the one film of his that I think has never diluted for me. This is the only one that every time I rewatch, I, if anything, like it even more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that especially the scenes that feel that scream Herzog are the ones of as the plague is setting in, in in the town. And there are just these scenes of, of Lucy just drifting through these scenes of madness of, of these, of these long processions of people carrying coffins of people essentially like they know that they are infected and they are just simply, and they are going to die very soon. So they just simply resolve to enjoy it as much, enjoy what little life they have left like the, and there's that you know, swirling camera like it feels very like th- those scenes like i feel like they they might be the like some of the more notable departures i think they really get at they they form a nice counterbalance to the more traditional Nos, uh, nosferatu dracula scenes yeah. like they, they form that they, they they complete the worldview in a, in a sense. I started thinking about those when you were talking about how this feels inhumane. I think that's actually right. And I think to the extent that Nosferatu feels more human in this to me than Max Schreck, um, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily so much that he is this tragic figure, even though I think he is pitched at that level it's almost like the actual humans are almost brought down to his level because Herzog <laughs> is portraying this sort of, I, to this day, I can't figure out what time period he's trying to nail because it does not feel like 19th century. It feels much closer to medieval, um, in right. the architecture and the Popova score, which is all <laughs> full of kind of lute guitars and this very kind of sprightly medieval folk texture. And when that plague hits, like you said, that's, I think about that sequence all the time where it's basically everyone just immediately resigning themselves to <laughs> a horrible death as if they just expect this to happen every so often, um, mm-hmm. which is grimly kind of funny, but I think is in some ways what gives that is what makes it to me the most emotionally resonant of the Dracula Mm. adaptations, which is impressive because I think probably no book has had more great adaptations than Dracula. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I, I haven't, you haven't seen the English version of this. Have you? I, I feel like maybe, I don't own, I know the version that I own is the German language, but I could have sworn mm-hmm. when I first saw it and I rent back when I rented discs off of Netflix, I could have sworn that that disc had an English language <laughs> track on it because it's very obviously re- was on set, done in English, and then dubbed mm-hmm. after. Um, 
but the version I rewatched for this is definitely was in German. Yeah, I'm curious about that, but yeah, either way, it's it it has its own like it 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 feels very much as much of Herzog film as the original does in a Murnau film, and that's a a compliment to it. it um, the next film, the next. The next program is another retrospective. This is a double bill uh, titled Howard Hughes Presents. And these are both films that were essentially withdrawn from theatrical showing for many years for different reasons. Um, The two films are Howard Hawks' Scarface from 1932 and Preston Sturge's The Sin of Harold Diddlebach from 1947, uh, also known as Mad Wednesday. And uh, we'll begin with Scarface, which is for many reasons, the much more f- familiar. And in this instance, the withdrawal was largely because of the enormous cens- censorship that was enacted on it. Um, and it's especially running into, well, for, for many reasons, but especially just it's what was perceived as its glorification of, of the, of the, of the mob and which has some very obvious inserts and, uh, title cards and so on and so forth but it's still uh it's it's still great it's it's the as as you probably know it's the story of the of tony camonte played by paul mooney rising up through the chicago mob scene uh, during prohibition and his his swift rise and even swifter fall um all told within 95 minutes uh contra the sprawling Brian De Palma version and it even though it's so censored even though it's so clearly mutilated to a certain extent it still has such a such a strong sense of the motivations behind these behind and and even more than that the the sort of pleasure that's derived out of crime for for these characters like from the very first scene which is this single take tracking through a restaurant as as scarf as tony in shadow kills kills a kills a mob boss and like just the the sort of fluidity of of many of these moments and how well hawks draws out the draws draws out these montages where tony and his compatriots are are intimidating one bar after another it it has such a it it has a just such a visceral sense to it it's such a gnarly film especially when you consider how old it is and like you said what it got subjected to i mean the hayes office was definitely coming regardless but they got a real (laughs) kickstart off of this film (laughs) um it's so it's obviously not the first mob movie the public enemy had come out the year previously but this just feels like ground zero for every single thing that came after it feels mm-hmm. like ground zero for goodfellas for the sopranos because it's so nasty and it even it reminds me a little bit of the texas chainsaw massacre insofar as <laughs> the violence is very rarely actually visible but you right. feel it so hard like the one shot from this movie that will be burned into my mind forever is of the shadows of people lined up against the wall and then just a spray of oh, tommy yeah. gun fire and mm-hmm. you just and all you right. see is the bullet holes just you know line <laughs> the whatever wall they're up against 
and right. you and there's no blood there's not even visible bodies but it's such a visceral hardcore moment and mm-hmm. it feels in a lot of ways um it it feels like the ultimate pre-code movie because it's just yeah within literally within a year's time you could never make a movie like this and you really couldn't until the 60s this really is just the Mm -hmm. last blast of a movie like this for literally decades Mm -hmm. right yeah it's just so cold-blooded like it's so even though i think mooney is mooney is terrific in it and even more importantly he's often quite funny Mm -hmm. in in just how how confident he is how 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 quick quick witted certainly but in a very very blunt sort of way where he's just bulldozing everyone and the and especially in some of the later some of the later kills where where example he he kills his his essentially best friend or his or his right hand man for for marrying his sister and it's it's just shot just like just in shot reverse shot where he just where 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 the i don't know if you see the gunfire but it's just like it you just you just see guino and then he's shot and then it cuts to the to the to the uh pistol and it, it yeah it, it's just so brutal it's so matter of fact in its in its violence that i think which is also juxtaposed with some of these more playful more or more overtly visceral scenes like the like the a few car chases which which ensue throughout the film and it it has a curious it has a curious a curious balance certainly and i think that for uh, that can also be um contributed to by the censorship but that being said it, ha- it also has these like some more strange moments some more out of place moments in the that you might not expect like the extended scenes with his family which of course culminates in his in his almost incestuous or or like the overtones incestuous overtones of his relationship with his sister Cheska um who's who's uh, played by Anne Dvorak who's really or Dvorak who's really really striking in the film like she's she has such a strong will with uh, that corresponds with his own that's um, otherwise absent in the other characters, which I think is, it lends another yet another sort of element that caused that caused a great amount of ire for for obvious reasons. But it it has, and and then there are also these. There's probably like five minutes worth of comic sequences involving his secretary <laughs> not being able to answer the phone. It 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 packs a lot into into ninety five minutes, and I can't quite totally totally love it simply because it feels so so clearly tampered with like there's at the very midpoint there's a very long scene involving involving these uh lead leaders from the or spokesmen spokespeople for the for the general citizens and a newspaper publisher lecturing lecturing them for not or or like a, a police captain lecturing them for glorifying or drawing too much attention to the <laughs> mobsters which it it so obviously uh inserted that it totally kills the momentum but even 
even with all of that, it still has that sense of, uh, of, of brutality to it. The next, the other, the sort of B side of the double bill is uh, the sin of Harold Diddlebach. And this is actually uh, something which I didn't realize going in, but it was a direct sequel to The Freshman. Um, it, it stars Harold Lloyd, and it's a direct sequel to The Freshman. Um, and he actually, it was his final a role, but he actually came out of retirement uh, for it. But the film was pulled by Hughes and re-edited because the release was was quite poor, and it was re-released in 1950. But that release also failed. Um, so, but this is actually I, I really really took to this film, even though it's so bizarre and so wildly totally wild. Um, for one, it begins with the entire ape eight minute football sequence from the freshman. It just reuses that entire, that entire <laughs> stretch of footage. Um, there, there are a few shots interspersed with a character who uh, appears in, uh, who appears in the present day scenes, which are just spliced in. You can tell very clearly because they're the only ones with sound, um, with, with, with oh recorded sound. <laughs> and, and then, so basically the plot is that he's, hired by this uh, ad executive and then and and then 22 years go by and you just see and he's playing himself in this sort of 22 years in in the 22 years before scenes as well like where he still looks young he still like has that same boyish look more more or less and then 22 years later he's still at the very same job like basically cashing checks or or like or authorizing checks for for purchase and then so he's and he just looks like the most most middle-aged man <laughs> imaginable <laughs> and then and so he's he's fired and then he um while he's trying to think of what to do next he consumes his first alcoholic beverage which is this which is specially prepared by a bartender and it which is called the diddlebock which makes him which like sends him into an absolute bender, which is first signaled by a series of enormous caterwauls, which he has no memory of. And then, so he bets on a horse race and which like for the absolute worst odds possible. And he, and th that horse wins. And so he, after a, a bender on Wednesday, he wakes up on Thursday, having no recollection of what happened, but now he has a, he's purchased a coach, uh, like a, a, a coach and Bucky and he has purchased an entire uh, circus. And so he has to figure out exactly what to, uh, what to do with this, with this circus because the lions are getting very hungry and the circus is not drawing any uh, spectators whatsoever. And this culminates of course in a, in both a sort of raid on banks, which is facilitated by, by a publicity stunt where, Lloyd Harold brings in the he he brings a lion like a tame lion into the into the bank in order to scare everyone to scare the the to convince the bank manager to give him money or and then this of course escalates into a essentially a recapitulation or a or or another take on the safety last um building <laughs> death defying building 
climb where he's where he's struggling with his friend and the lion on the ledge of a building which goes on for like 10 minutes and it's and also there's another subplot involved where earlier in the film he he confesses to this this young secretary that as he's been there for 22 years he's fall um he's fallen in love with all of her six older sisters um and this is done like in the span of an entire of just one monologue where he describes each and every sister and how he fell in love and he fell in love even more strongly with the next one but he never and he has a what a engagement ring and he's but he's never been able to give it and there's just so much it it's a very very funny film and a very densely packed film um and like just because of that it's sort of it's kind of a mess but it's one that i think really gets works wonders with the with that heraldoid persona i do prefer this actually the safety last like it has such a a wit about it it's it's a it's a hard film to really encapsulate but there's just so much that happens in it this is kind of an interesting case there are a few films here that i did not get to this one i just legitimately i think when you sent me the list i think my brain saw scarface and then i just moved on to the next new <laughs> release and i just literally did uh-huh. not process this at all everything you just described mm-hmm. sounds amazing <laughs> um <laughs> i'll be watching this post haste um i actually it took me a while to get into preston sturgis i did not care for the lady eve when i first saw it at all um and it was much later that i watched palm beach story which i loved and i only just now circled back to lady eve and really enjoyed it this time i would be very curious to see how a very um dialogue driven comic voice like sturges mixes with a silent comedian like that i mm-hmm. this sounds fascinating even if it even if it's maybe a bit too much or this or the personality <laughs> clash or the styles clash is a bit too extreme this just sounds fascinating to me <laughs> right yeah it's fascinating and i actually this is my first sturges so i don't oh, have really? that frame of reference yeah a uh, great a uh, huge blind spot uh this accepted but yeah and i think that Lloyd acquits himself very well. I think that he's able to really, a lot of it depends on his appearance and his ability to sort of morph back into that younger self. Like he looks younger and he's wearing this, this very loud, very plaid suit and a, and an enormous like cowboy hat uh, in, in the, in the final scenes, which is a great sight gag for, for lack of a better term. And yeah. And you know, it, even though I think he's, he does a lot of good comic work and like largely consists of uh, or vocal work and largely consists of shouting. There's also, it's just also in the way he's, he first sees the line, he just immediately coils up on, on his chair. So it, it, it contains, it's a showcase for him, certainly more than anything else. And it's a quite a interesting and wild one. I, it, Definitely one of the bigger discoveries for me of this of this slate. The next film is the last film in this in in the New York Film Festival. Surprisingly, for James Ivory uh, and for Merchant Ivory at large, uh, directed at least. Of course, there's Call Me by Your Name later, but this is the Europeans, um, which is an adaptation of the Henry James book, um, and this was the first of their sort of their the 
period dramas, costume dramas that they become most known for. And it basically deals with this with this family living in a state in in the 1850s in Bo- in the Boston area and the the visit of two two cousins from Europe who are um Felix and Eugenia and it basically follows their sort of romantic entanglements with various members of the family um and it's th- this was my least favorite of the festival though I think it's I I think I've as it went along I think I've found more a few things to latch onto I think especially because as it goes along it focuses more on Eugenia and which like forms a much more complex sort of love triangle love entanglements where it's almost like she's trying like it's almost a series of engineering relationships like it's becomes more of like a like a, a game um in contrast to the more earnest nature of of um felix and gertrude's love uh but at the same time it it, it feels like the the perspective or the or the sense of period feels a bit off like it feels sort of just awkward in in the way it tries to build up the relationships build up the sense of the societal codes that are clearly paramount to the film but which never quite feel as tightly rooted as they as they should be um it it feels yeah it it feels like it's a bit too especially since this is a 90 minute film i think it definitely suffers from the from like a sense of simplification i agree with everything you said this was by some degree my least favorite thing i watched for this um (laughs) i'm really surprised that you said this is the last james ivory film considering it's after this that they really kind of grow into merchant (laughs) ivory as we know them like that's very fascinating but i um over the last few years i've actually been reading henry james's novels in chronological order Mm. And it's been an incredibly rewarding experience. Um, And because if you read him in order, you kind of get to see him grow from a much more accessible writer who writes a lot of sort of comedy of manners type novels into the very imposing pantheon author that he's now recognized as. And The Europeans is definitely one of the kind of early uh, to, to steal from Woody Allen, one of the early funny ones. Um, <laughs> and this to me just did not nail the humor of the book at all. Um, there's, which is a very difficult thing to do because a lot of Jamesian humor is very predicated on those social mores and mm-hmm. teasing out the incredible sense of importance that the characters and just society at large places on them. And just something about this, because a lot of the Henry James novels that are about the inner sort of the collision of American and British sense or even just European sensibilities are, I think, subtly satires on how America in sort of contradiction to what you might think as the revolutionary breakaway independent nation is by and large the much more conservative social Mm. organization it's much more rooted in this sort of greedy mercantilism uh this sense of propriety that it basically sort of projects onto europe and then the characters go to europe or europe comes to them in this case 
and they are just caught completely off guard by how comparatively libertine that society is. Because um, this is an entire, this, uh, Eugenia's entire arc is that she's literally married to a prince or a duke or some, some sort of aristocrat, but she's come to America mm. to find a different husband because <laughs> that marriage is just a completely political arranged marriage. It, neither of them really want to be in it. And she's come to America specifically to make her cousins find her a rich man to marry. <laughs> and that's, a, that's really the crux of the story. And I just don't think the film captured the inherent comedy of that, of the, of the sort of... Right. In the book, the, in, the, in the novel, the Americans are much more scandalized by that. And in this <laughs> one, everyone just sort of takes everything at face value, which means there's really no conflict of any, any shape to me. There's just nothing mm -hmm. propelling this. And like you said, it's only 90 minutes long. And it's, it's in a weird way, it's been so simplified that it almost feels too long because there's just nothing to right. hang a film on. <laughs> so they've, they've cut so much out that it ends up feeling dragged out because there's just all the connective tissue is gone. <laughs> mm -hmm. Is this one that you've read? The, yes. Like the, okay. Yeah. I, is it? It's considered one of its lesser ones, right? It's or... definitely minor. It's um, it's sandwiched between uh, two of his more famous early early novels. Um, it came right after mm -hmm. The American, which kind of treads a lot of similar territory, but I think it's just a stronger book. And it's two books before Washington Square, which was, of course, mm -hmm. adapted as The Heiress, and I think is probably his first great book he has everything right. before that even the europeans i think is a very good book um but i think washington square is where he really kind of comes into his own and the book after that is the portrait of a lady which is just a complete stratospheric quantum leap <laughs> um <laughs> i would be genuinely surprised to watch the merchant ivory adaptation of the bostonians which is mm. the novel that james wrote after portrait of a lady and is of what I've read so far, easily his funniest book. Um, mm -hmm. And considering that I don't think they nailed any of the comedy in this one, I would be very <laughs> curious to know, to see if they got it in that one. Um, but yeah, this to me was, I think, probably really the only film that I watched for, for this lineup that I would probably never watch again. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it, it doesn't really, it feels too straight laced mm -hmm. which is which is ironic considering the actual like the actual intent of it of many of its characters uh, yeah it i think it has some interesting moments i think i even though i think the pacing of individual scenes feels too slow i think that at least pictorially it it looks it looks nice i think that or like especially the compositionally but it doesn't really yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't really have anywhere close to the spark it needs. The next film is the one extremely long film in this uh, in this lineup, but a very interesting one. To, actually, a debut film uh, by Aryan Munuchkin, who's uh, who is a theater director. Uh, this is Moliere, her by essentially telling almost cradle to grave of the of the famed. French playwright, one of the perhaps the most acclaimed French playwright, and essentially dealing with his almost his entire life from when he was ten to the day of his death, and it's 
it's a, a whopping four hours and uh, four hours, maybe four hours and change, depending on, I think maybe depending on the sort of uh, frames per second you watch it at. But in in any case, it's it's quite a long film and very and it proceeds in a strange fashion. It it definitely is the the second half is more about the sort of rooted in the play. The actual once he curries favor with um, with the Sun King and is able to actually produce his sort of widely beloved um widely beloved plays and much of the focus is given towards tartuffe and its and its contentious reception and the first half is more about his childhood and leading up to the point where he actually starts to travel as an actual as an actual actor and it's it's a it's a film i i liked it it's definitely hard to really it's first hard to conceive of as being as a debut simply because it's so it's so expansive and so focused it it has so many crowd scenes it it, it just has so many people so many things happening in it and and in such different locales that it's sort of difficult to conceive of as being work of a of a theater director's of, of a theater director's first film and i think that as it goes along it accrues as it accrues maybe a more personal sense of Moliere I think that the especially the sort of last hour I think has almost it almost reminded me of the Irishman in a certain way and like how it sort of has these people um falling out of his life before he himself succumbs but it yeah it like it it certainly feels uneven for (laughs) for obvious reasons but but I think it's it has it just has a lot in it and i think that it's i i think you could maybe fashion a good like a two hours that that would be like extremely solid but i don't know if it would be a superior film i think that much of it is in the sort of taking the state of a nation over over the span of six decades or so and i think that that's part of what gives it its strange sense of opulence yeah, this really feels like a tale of two films, and it's almost per- it truly is perfectly divided. Where the film naturally is split between part one and two, because <laughs> the first part, the first part is almost just tangentially about Moliere. Moliere is almost in the first part exclusively as a means of just corralling a broader historical critique, which I found fascinating at, from the perspective of you know biopics are just the most creatively moribund genre in my view (laughs) and to use it it reminded me a lot of the historical films of Rossellini um, Mm. in that it's taking a subject as kind of a centralizing element but it is intensely more interested in the social context that forged that person Uh, all those crowd scenes that just based that really hammer home that pre-revolutionary France was just an absolute hellhole. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the sort of very loose. I don't know that they're really that successful, but the kind of parallels between Moliere coming of age as a child and Louis XIV uh, mm-hmm. becoming the king regent as a very very young child. Um, 
where he still answers to he, he's basically he is the king in name only and his mother and cardinal richelieu are the actual stewards of empire um that stuff is interesting i don't know that it's made that important but um right the the first half of it really comes down to the giant carnival sequence, which is, I, I was, I almost interrupted you when you said it was her first film, because I can't believe someone making their very first film organized something that elaborate and that well done. Um, it's such, I was so unnerved by that entire sequence. The context being uh, a hyper-religious sect kind of gained power around that time in France and they were trying to crack down on any kind of vice and obviously Carnival is a major sort of the, the big pre-Lent Bacchanal. So the sequence just starts out with them at least trying to stop seminary students from going out and celebrating because I, I did love the detail, which was a very Moliarean touch because um, I've read a little bit of Moliere in French classes mm-hmm. of the sheriff of paris being a complete coward who um just immediately admits that he cannot stop people from celebrating and partying because that's the only thing that these peasants had to live for um <laughs> but when it erupts into this it riot's not the correct word because it's not like there's an actual violent clash with authorities but right. just the fact that they that all the people of paris just show up outside of this college and they're literally just basically it's it's in a weird way. It's just kind of like um, uh, imperial animal house because they're literally just basically trying <laughs> to get all these college kids to come out and party with them. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But the way that she shoots that, where you don't even realize Moliere is in that crowd until about two thirds of the way into the sequence, and then she pulls up what is to me a very Scorsesean uh, bit, which is that she lights him up just so much like i he's in some kind of costume paint which is a big recurring theme throughout the entire movie um Mm -hmm. but he just sort of appears in a corner of the frame and you even though it's a long shot you can still immediately tell it's him which i just thought was such an impressive bit of business considering that she was corralling (laughs) however many dozens of people um and then it just feels like the second half which becomes much more a straight biography of, of of the way that we experienced it, which is about, you know, Moliere writing his plays and dealing with fame and all of that. It's good, but that to me is just what you expect out of a biopic. And that first part is so much broader and so much more interesting to me that it kind of felt like a letdown. Although I did find it interesting that it kind of cuts around any actual footage of his plays i mean you see a little bit of it but most right. of most of what they show theatrically is his sort of pre-fame pre even even really like his pre-writing phase where it's him more mm-hmm. as an actor mm-hmm. doing commedia dell'arte stuff um including a scene that is borderline agonizing and how long it stretches on where he's just screaming in gibberish doing a bit for the king <laughs> which it's 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 kind of a simpsons rake gag where it starts out funny and then it becomes absolutely unbearable and then it loops back around into being genuinely funny (laughs) right and yeah i i think and there are some some portrayals of of cornet tragedies which are kind of awful to sit through like (laughs) just like the, the the because it's just like 
and I, I think that at least from what I saw of Strawberry Gaze Oton, like I I I can definitely see Cornet being performed well, but it's just like this sort of like declamation shouting that, that doesn't work at all. And that actually forms probably a good third to half of what's actually shown of theater. And I think the most impactful scenes of actually showing Moliere in his in the flesh of his artistic sense is actually like this rehearsal mm-hmm. um which is uh, like one of my favorite scenes where it's just him coaching this actress through through a scene of tartuffe and it's just this long like it's largely done in like this sort of circular tracking shot that like it and this is after he's gotten much older and the pas- passage of time in this is kind of strange because it jumps so so frequently yeah. in that second half and it gets like the, the film definitely for the most part it's less predicated on proving to you that he's genius and more like showing like the the sort of side effects or the 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 offshoots of that and for that i think it's interesting it's it's i think or what one of my another favorite scene is the this final scene that he has with uh, Madeline, who's been one of his closest collaborators, where they're working out this scene from what became his last uh, his last play, where they repurpose a scene from the from the from a previous play that he wrote, and they're reenact, they're acting it, they're they're changing lines as they go, and this is all done in like in deep shadow and candlelight, and then at, right right after that she dies and. It feels like a nice sort of encapsulation of that sort of artistic spirit, which is not necessarily emphasized that much throughout the film, but which is, of course, a a, a recurring presence. Um, and I do actually quite like the in the first part, the actual Moliere parts, where it's him, especially the the death of his mother, um, where they where it's it happens out of. Like it happens quite suddenly, but it's handled very well by his grandfather, who's living with them, and and the and the servant that lives with them, and they go to a they go to a, a play performance, and it's not necessarily like you can definitely certainly see that as sort of like a oh this is where he developed his love for for theater, but but it doesn't necessarily play like that. It's more like a brief respite, and like it's touches like that. Like it's certainly a lot of narrative, a lot of film to take in, but I think it gets at those touches, which, which help, which certainly help. A lot. I agree. I, I really like your Irishman comparison to the second half. Cause it really <laughs> does feel like that, which is funny. Cause like you said, I think a lot, all of the best scenes of him composing his plays really stress how collaborative they were and really stress how mm-hmm. they came together either from rewrites or, rehearsals or all these things and yet the entire kind of last third of the film is him increasingly sort of drunk on his own reputation (laughs) and pushing all these people away who really helped make his work what it was um details like that i thought were really good um the way that it handles death in general i think was very smart even though the timeline jumps do get confusing um yeah i think it's very honest about how you would approach death at a time period like that when it was just everywhere to some extent um Mm -hmm. where it's Mm -hmm. not that no one cares but it's that you're just sort of mentally prepared for it at all times um Mm -hmm. 
I think I, overall, I think it was a very strong film. I do. I'm kind of in your boat where I think both it could stand to be shorter, but that I don't know that that would improve it. Right. Yeah. And it should note apparently in the following year, beginning on January 9th, it was shown five segments on on TV on Wednesdays. I don't know how that would play uh, <laughs> as, as a weekly sort of serial, TV. but <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, where, wherever you can show it. Absolutely. The next film is a documentary, Best Boy, directed by Ira Wohl, and this is essentially a documentary that Wohl made of, um, with his cousin Philly uh, as the subject, and Philly, who actually died in uh, earlier this year in April, um, he he was a, uh, a autistic, severely autistic man at that time at the time of filming he was in his 50s and essentially the film um as wool states in in actually quite frequent voiceover which is a bit of a surprise um basically talks about the how he felt that trying to have philly live more independently would uh would would essentially help him and essentially the film takes place over three years of filming in which Philly goes to goes to school for for the autistic and learns and essentially it's beginning to live more and more on his own and at the end he at over the course of the film um Philly's father dies and and his and in a sort of postscript added later in a later release, I don't know exactly when, uh, his his mother died also in the year following shooting or the year following release, and the and it's sort of it's certainly not a bad film by any means. I think it's it ge- it generally does what it sets out to do, but I think that it feels a bit limited by like a certain shapelessness. I think that especially the film only especially has a few interactions between Wool himself and and his cousin. And I think that the like those scenes are some of the more interesting, some of the more enlightening in the film. Like there's like my I think handily the most interesting part is where they go to see uh Fiddler on the Roof and they're they they go backstage to meet Zero Mustel and the and it even seems like they actually have footage that they shot of Fiddler on the Roof that, sh- that they shot specifically for the film. Like you have Zero Mustel looking into the camera and singing, uh, if I were, if I were a rich man and so on and so forth. And 
it feels a bit impersonal. Like even though it definitely always feels empathetic towards Philly and his sort of ongoing development, it doesn't necessarily feel like it has either the sort of personal connection or the or necessarily the sort of concrete development that you might expect, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's just like it the film extremely it doesn't quite get as uh like as close as intimate that as i feel like i I might have expected at least given his very obvious connection i'm in the same boat um it's certainly not a bad film by any stretch um but for a film that really isn't about the broader social issue of how to care for people with uh, developmental disabilities Mm -hmm. And it's specifically focused on Philly, and it's specifically focused on Ira Wall's attempts to sort of future-proof, which is a big... I mean, I, I have friends who have uh, siblings or other relatives with incredibly advanced autism, and that mm-hmm. is a conversation you have, is, you know, what happens when their parents are no longer here? Right. Um and I was in, I was interested to see how they sort of went about trying to very belatedly, you know, handle the idea of how, you know, to what extent can he be independent and stuff like that. But it's, it's shot in a very kind of old school direct cinema, <laughs> kind of D.A. Pennebaker style where it's, a lot of handheld close-ups, a lot of not a whole lot of context, even with the voiceovers, which I was also surprised by, considering the style of the film. Um, mm-hmm. It's, I think, trying to be immersive, but it's kind of not in any real way. And I think a lot of that is obviously that you're filming a subject. The, the entire point of the film is you're filming a subject who perhaps who can't fully express himself. Um, I think movies like this are just ethical minefields and I think this navigates Mm -hmm. it. Okay. Um, right. But I just don't think it's ultimately, I don't think it's personally illuminating because I think he's trying very hard not to put his own emotional stakes into the film, but then it also isn't particularly revelatory about, the broader social issue, even though you kind of see that at the margins. Um, I, I obviously the bit, the showstopper is seen like the big is the zero Mostel stuff where um, it's very sweet. Mostel is very you know, accommodating and he sings mm-hmm. with Philly and like, that's the big kind of moment that everyone remembers. But to me, the big part of that scene is he's kind of takes Ira aside and they're chatting a little bit right. and he, kind of very quietly mentions that he had a relative growing up who was kind of the same way and they had and he was like you know we had nothing there was nothing at that time that we could have really done there was no place or anything like Mm -hmm. that because they're talking about sending philly to these schools and these kind of uh uh housing uh projects or whatever the setup for it was and you even see in some of the classes that he's in or like some of the people who are helping that there are moments where um, if you pulled some of the stuff that they pulled, you would absolutely be fired within two seconds. Like there's this scene where they're taking, where this one woman is taking this class to a McDonald's and she's not abusive 
but she's also mm-hmm. very like literally telling someone with down syndrome to stop whining and stuff like that. <laughs> and it's just like that, that stuff I think is illuminating more so in retrospect than as an actual right. point of view that Ira Wall was advancing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, yeah, it, it's very much a in between film. I think largely I received it more as like a historical document and even a document to some extent of New York city and just like the sort of just the way it looked and felt to whatever degree in, in, in that time period. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it, yeah, it, it feels like just like, I, I do like that. There's this sort of very concrete beginning and ending shot with Philly in the first, in the very first shot being shaved by his father. And then in the very final shot, he's using a trimmer himself. Mm -hmm. Like, like, you know, that's a very obvious touch, but it's a nice one, certainly. And yeah. And it is worth noting, like one of the main scenes with wool himself, where he's basically telling uh, his aunt to, to let, let Philly live in, in this sort of home, home for, for those with autism. And that, like, like you said, like it's an important thing to have, but because he's so, he's he's so behind the camera for most of the rest of the film. I think he was operating sound. He's like it almost feels like an intrusion in a weird mm-hmm. way, which is not, which you know it's a necessary intrusion, but it I don't think it necessarily works all that well for the film. It definitely it's it's not it's it's a worthy film in in some respects. I just wish it went further. Yeah, much more in one vein. I think actually, to me, the the most the most uh, revealing aspects of that film are actually more about Philly's mother than you need than Philly himself. I think it's right. actually to the extent that I enjoyed the film. I think I enjoyed it much more as a depiction of how caregivers at that level kind of form. Codependent is such a negative, obviously has so many negative associations, but I think this is a Mm -hmm. very positive and loving depiction of a codependent relationship. And it's kind of a reminder that that is ultimately a value neutral term because obviously Philly's needed assistance his whole life. But I think as he starts to gain this independence and starts to actually learn how to exist on his own, to me, I think a lot of the emotional resonance of that movie comes from watching his mother deal with, very 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 late in life with anti-nest syndrome Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, i think yeah it has these different because the point of view is so objective like it's able to get these sort of these other elements in but i don't know if it necessarily feels like a distraction or something like that it's it's it does what it's trying to do but it's not as focused as it is it feels like it wants to be yeah the next film is Other People's Money, directed by Christian de Chalon, a, a French film with a surprising amount of French French stars. And this is actually, I think, maybe along with the, the next film is is like really like the biggest discoveries of the festival for me. Uh, this is quite a remarkable film. And, and while I think that it's maybe slightly flawed in that it's almost going for too much, I think it really gets at this really interesting point of view on on paranoia like it 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 did remind me of short 
memory in in some respects and the plot is essentially is uh uh generally trenting not is is a banker or in a like a lower level banker who is summarily fired for for supposedly helping this uh, being an accomplice for this uh investor who's scamming money from a very a widely respected bank uh and he's essentially trying to set out to prove his innocence and also to prove that that the that the bank was complicit in um what was was actually siphoning their own money out of this venture and improve, approved every every transaction and fixed the books along the way and it's and among the the, the cast it also includes Catherine Deneuve, Juliette Berteau, uh Claude Brasseur, um uh Michel Sorot and it it's the the film doesn't necessarily get better than its opening which is this incredible incredible it first because on close-ups and then gradually it dovetails into this job interview where it's where the interview the first round of the interview uh where trenton yacht um is is one of the interviewees is conducted in this amazing sort of one-way mirror setup where there are these six or seven rooms adjoining each other set in a circle or like a semicircle where there are women reading the questions behind behind the glass and there's a, a man sitting behind them directing them uh, for each person and this is a setup that is never referenced again like it's just it's just shown as this sort of vestige of of the system of the sort of uh, of, of the paranoid mindset that the rest of the film occupies and the film becomes more conventional as it goes along uh, which is I don't think necessarily a bad thing because it's so it's so dynamically shot i think that it especially in terms of the the sound editing which is largely which especially in the opening has these wildly disconcordant echoing echoing sounds like there's a a ball that's dropped down the stairs that the and the sound repeats long after it's finished on screen and and the score has all these voices like chanting or singing uh in unison it's and it's a, a touch that doesn't necessarily gel with with what the film is trying to go for in terms of a narrative thing but it works in terms of a tonal thing and in terms of an aesthetic and it's it has it has many things that i i lashed onto it's it's hard to sort of describe but it it has many it contains multitudes like there's a this out of nowhere cartoon ad uh, with for for this invest for the investment that the investor made that features bugs like anthropomorphic bugs that are singing and they're and these sort of giant gold bars there are for berto she's only in like three scenes but she's wearing just these amazing glasses and she's she's a a union a, a union member and it's m- maybe more an accumulation of all these strange things that add up to form a portrait of the of of corruption and of eventually the ultimate impossibility of of someone who's trying to defy the system to rejoin it the film ends with with Trantignant in teaching essentially teaching PR and like running a PR class and the last line is of 
is after someone knocks over a wine glass that's filled with water, he just notes to himself, it won't stain. <laughs> and like that's that line, like it feels like the perfect summation because it gets at all those sort of details of all those of of that mindset that he's been locked in and which he'll never be able to shake because of this experience. It's it's a really a really a, a film I, I've found a lot to like and this is the one of the ones I did not get to, but I plan to very soon because everything about it sounded great. And I'm pretty sure the reason I didn't is that I got it so mixed up with short me- with um, short memory because the the log lines for both sounded so similar that I think when I saw short memory, I just in my mind logged that I had seen it. <laughs> and right before I went, oh wait a minute, what's this movie? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I th- I do prefer short memory, and I think that this one, especially, I think Deneuve is is woefully underutilized though i think that she does make the most of what she has um and it's it's more like i i love the individual parts than necessarily uh, like or i adore the 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 individual parts but as a whole like i just merely love love the film as a whole but it 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 really it really surprised me um i, I really enjoyed it the next film is Yusef Shaheen's Alexandria Y. And uh, essentially, this is a sort of, not necessarily a portrait of the nation, but it takes place essentially during um, during World War II in Alexandria, Egypt, and follows mainly the mainly the story of this of this young man Yahya who wants to be who wants who wants to be an actor and a and a filmmaker, but it also spirals out to feature many different stories, um, including those of relatives, of people, of sort of people seeking to overthrow the current British rule, even if it means accepting the Germans. Um, a an uncle who has this sort of homoerotic fixations on on foreign soldiers, and. And it, ru- it runs to two hours fifteen minutes, but I think that it, I, I was really quite taken with it. Like something about its energy, about the way it, it is able to dovetail all these perspectives into forming a very, a, a, a very energetic portrait of the times. Like it, it never feels it, always, it feels irreverent, largely to a certain extent, uh, in the course of its playing out, especially, especially in terms of shiny Cheyenne's style, which is very um like there's plenty of these wild handheld tracks there's especially these very associative edits like there's this one moment where where a dead body washes up on the shore next to yeah yeah and then it cuts to the it cuts to a crucifix um like it cuts from the foot of the body to the to a crucifix and especially there are some lovely layerings of audio like over one of the characters being sentenced to to jail for um uh the, it plays Glenn Miller's in in the mood the the prototypical sort of swing song um and also lots of archival footage like a a really surprising amount and sometimes that's used as punctuation or like an accentuation of of the character's emotions especially of Yahya's there's even one moment where a character throws a Molotov cocktail and then cuts to archival footage of a truck exploding. Uh, it, it's a, it's a very, another 
another enormous film in its own way, but one I think which I which I really really liked. I was so pleasantly surprised that this was on Netflix. I I know right. every now and then Netflix will have a nice little um, selection of films that you would not expect, given their increasingly awful mission statement. Um, <laughs> I it took a while for this to win me over, just insofar as I tend to not really connect with films about filmmaking. Uh, like this to me had a lot of shades of, or at least out of the gate, it had a lot of shades of cinema Paradiso, which is a film I've never really <laughs> liked that much. Um, I would like to revisit it, but I've never really cared for it. But then this one just kept getting so much bigger and bigger and bigger mm. and so much broader. And every time I thought I was getting a little bit bored with watching the main character, the Chihine proxy, um, you know, become more and more infatuated with films, it would then just completely pivot into these really interesting social critiques and these very interesting, there are so many romantic stories in this that are incredibly daring, whether it's, like you said, the uncle who basically just kind of runs through foreign soldiers or <laughs> the Jewish woman who gets into a relationship with a Muslim man. like mm-hmm. And that that kind of stuff tends to be when there are films about filmmaking when sort of the external context starts looking more and more like a movie that's actually when i end up getting on board with them mm, it's the right. it's the falling in love with the work that i tend to find very one note but right around the time with this that i kind of thought that i would start where i felt my mind start to wonder it just got to be such an energy. It's such an energetic film. Like you said, all the, the associative edits, um, despite all the handheld shots, there's a very, and the sort of generally realistic nature of it. There's a very bold sense of color and movement Mm, and mm -hmm. just watching it kind of morph more and more into a movie in the classical sense out of this very grounded beginning was really exciting and i understand this is the first of a trilogy i believe something like that yeah, yeah um i really need to track those down i also can't wait to rewatch this and just have a better appreciation of the beginning stuff um this i uh, i think this was also one of my bigger surprises i had vaguely heard of this i've never seen a chihine film prior to this and i know that he's obviously a major name in egyptian cinema um but Yes, this was this was a wonderful this this was just a wonderful film. Right, yeah, and I think the one he's most known for is Cairo Station, which is more mm-hmm. of a noir sort of film, from what I understand. But I think that it's it's very much in the sprawl. It's the like one of the centerpiece sequences is is this play that he puts on where which is like this grand retelling or or telling in the moment of of like of egyptian nazi uk it italy conflicts yeah. um and you know there's plenty of swastikas which is something uh which i did not expect necessarily but like it it sort of it serves as a good reflection of the mindset like it it's like you do get intimations certainly of like the the jewish the jewish woman and her father flee because they say that they're that they're killing jews but that's something that's only mentioned once and it's not really remarked upon it's much more about the specifically the Egyptian the mindset of Egyptians and like their varying reactions to the to 
all this conflict that is happening around them. And you even get like a few scenes at the front lines, which are, I don't know what the budget for this film was like, or like exactly how many resources he had, because it seems like a ton for, especially for the, for the few battlefield sequences that there are. Um, and yeah, I think that I was actually really taken by the last 20 minutes or so, which is it clicks in fully to getting the money for yeah, he had to go to America and to the Pasadena Drama Academy for him to study more. And it, like it, for some reason, like the way, even though it's not necessarily the focus, it's not the only focus of the film throughout that sun snap to it. It gave like a strangely emotional sort of sense of grounding to it, to, to the, that brings the film in nicely. Um, yeah, it's just like there. There's so many wild, wild swings here, and and a sense of illusion and sense of willingness to bring in all these real life figures and in, in mention. Like there's a repeated mention, a repeated planning of of a plot to kidnap or assassinate Churchill as he as he's coming <laughs> in on a submarine to to Egypt. Like it, it, it's 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 a wild film for for that. Like I I, I think it's. It, it might not be the most it might not necessarily all cohere but i think that because it's shot through with this energy with this with with this like sense of vitality with within within what might be like more commonly represented as like this moribund or this fearful time like that it gives each of its characters so much life is something um and beauty and visual beauty certainly that I think that's what I really gravitate towards in this film. Absolutely. The next film is Gillian Armstrong's debut, I believe, uh, My Brilliant Career. Um, and this is certainly one of the more well-known films uh, in this slate, especially given its relatively recent Criterion release. And both the, or like sort of star-making roles for Judy Davis and Sam Neill. And essentially it's about Sibylla played by Davis, who is this extremely headstrong uh, young woman in the turn, turn of the century Australia, who goes to live uh, goes to live with her grandmother and an aunt, and in order to sort of find a place for herself. Especially, the the film focuses on her romantic interest in in Harry, played by Neil, and her sort of developing developing sense of self developing uh attempt to either fit in or totally reject societal norms and especially that of marriage versus her dream of becoming a becoming some form of artist uh she she deliberately says herself that she's not sure maybe singing maybe writing and uh it's a i it's a film for i had trouble with for some reason like i think that it I, I don't necessarily know exactly what it's going for. Like I, the the film, like the ultimate trajectory, the ultimate end point is of course that she rejects, um, she, she rejects the romance and she decides to forge her own path as a, as an artist, but it's one that doesn't necessarily feel that nearly as foregrounded to me as, as it does, as, as it feels like it should be like the focus is almost, wholly on her her 
her uh, romance. And it was something that gave me some trouble. I think that it's not necessarily, I think it's more just the adaptation process than anything else. I haven't read the book it's based on, but it just feels like there's something missing there that I can't quite pin. And I think frequently it's it's a very beautiful film to look at. And I think that both Davis and Neil do a really wonderful job, but it it's one that I, I had some trouble with. I can see that. I had a, when I went to rewatch this, I distinctly remember really liking this film, but I could remember almost nothing about it. So <laughs> when I rewatched it, it halfway felt like I was watching it for the first time. And I can absolutely see where you're coming from. Cause I agree that I think it's for the story of a supposed artist and the idea that the entire film is more or less the arc separating her stated dream to become an artist and her sending off her manuscript it is basically 100 percent not concerned <laughs> with her as a writer <laughs> um but when i was re-watching it i kind of had a very positive comparison point to little women and the way that that's structured mm, especially right. the greta gerwig version where um basically this just feels like uh the Joe March story where it's just all about this young woman who craves something bigger and kind of wants to become an artist, but almost does that incidentally to just trying to not be a part of the general social direction afforded to women. Um, what I really liked about this film the first time and coming back to it is just how understated it is. Cause this feels, this feels like a lot of what period drama is now, which is very directed at the basically using the present day to comment on the social mores of the past. But whereas a lot of films now I feel like are very demonstrative about that and they're very obvious and, you know, everyone has their kind of Oscar sizzle reel moment where they kind of, you know, <laughs> where they're crying and they're talking about wanting to be their own person and not wanting to have a husband or whatever. All the moments like that in this film are very softly played. They're very brief. They're very understated and they're very emotionally level, even though you get a sense of her conviction out of it. And to me, just it felt like such an interesting way to do this kind of movie, which I now feel like we get at least once a year. Um, and they probably, in some ways, I'm sure a lot of the directors of kind of modern day period films, I'm sure they all rate this very highly because this mm -hmm. does seem like a this does seem kind of like an ur text for a lot of modern period drama that is kind of low key a social critique. Um, but just the way that she composes is very kind of stately, but matter of fact and not, it, it's always very gorgeous and it's always been very carefully considered, but it's not showy in the way that say, even the Merchant Ivory film that we watched is, mm -hmm. you know, the compositions aren't really calling attention to themselves, even though there's a lot of, there are a lot of shots where there's something happening outside a window kind of in its own separate plane and its own kind of miniature frame within the frame, whereas she might be in the foreground doing something. And then out of the window, you see like farmers or just something, some kind of rough housing, but it just never feels forced. Um, 
and I really liked the romantic angle with her and Harry because I, I liked the overall shape of that. Um, it helps that Harry's played by Sam Neill at kind of <laughs> peak hot levels. Um, but I, I liked all of my points of comparison, I think, are just other kinds of 19th century literature that kind of dabble in the same things and but maybe come to more at the time socially acceptable conclusions uh i think i thought a lot about jane austen throughout all of this but instead of it ending sort of with a happy marriage that kind of sort of takes a woman on as an equal this is just straight up a denial of the entire process mm-hmm. um but i do th- i do think it is missing something and i think you I can never really place what it was. I think you've come a lot. I think you've elucidated a lot of it in saying that it's just not really concerned with her as an artist, which you would think that would be the crux of her self-actualization. Whereas really this is just mainly a story about defining yourself through denial. Right. Yeah. I think that the, yeah, it's much, I think I like individual sequences a lot more than I do like the, film as a whole like i think that because that sensitive development i think is something that it's not necessarily missing and i think you certainly see that in the romance area it's just like the actual like you do see a few scenes of her writing for instance and obviously that's something hard to represent but it's never something that's emphasized as much as i feel like it it might be um but but like I like the sequence, for instance, where she's serving as a governess on on a on this very rural farm, and like that has a nice sense of development of her learning to learning the best way to teach, learning the best way to interact. And I think that gets at some of the certainly some of the most interesting aspects about the film. Uh, as it stands, I think the it it feels it doesn't feel necessarily off, but I think it feels a bit, a bit cloistered for, for, for my liking. Mm-hmm. The next film, actually the next two films form what must be one of the roughest or, or, uh, agonizing days in, in, in NIF, certainly so far, probably, probably just in general. The first of these is a scream from silence directed by Anne Claire Poirier a Canadian film in French and this is a sort of it's not necessarily a full-on like it has documentary elements uh, but predominantly a fiction film essentially taking place for the most part the the majority of the film tells the story of of this nurse who is who's raped and attempts to recover recoverer and her eventual suicide and interspersed with this is essentially documentary footage almost um video essay fashion uh this extended scene in a quasi courtroom where various women presumably actresses give their testimony and the director and editor of this of the first storyline deal looking at this, this footage of reenactment and, and debating it. And all, all of this is, and, and these, and that in and of itself, the, the director and editor are played by actresses. 
and it's it's a film I it I saying that I liked it is perhaps not the most ac- accurate of terms. I think I found it very impactful. I, I think that there's that it has immense worth. I think in some in some respects it's maybe a bit too essentialist to to focus on on the fundamental nature of the of this violent and heinous act to to necessarily dig deep into into some of its more tangential tangential arguments but i think that it it's a incredibly bruising film and an incredibly unsettled film which is what it really needs to be the film opens with this 20 minute rape scene which is shot almost exclusively uh, from the point of view of the victim of the nurse and it's almost carried out in this ritualistic sort of fashion where the where the rapist taunts her he he's drinking beer he's hitting her and it's all one certainly one of the most tough things i've ever seen in a film it it and immediately after that is this sort of scene of the directors themselves analyzing it and this is something which is not featured as much as i might have expected this sort of intervention in the footage but which does form an important backbone to the film as a whole and it's a film it it's certainly a I, I found I found it quite in quite a, a film that 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 drew that drew me in certainly uh, I think that it certainly has some problems but I think that it has this urgency to it which I which I thought was well well needed. I'm mostly on the same page. Um, I the transition from the opening, which is just grueling and so mm-hmm. hard to watch to the editing booth kind of feels like a more straight faced and more serious version of the way that Brian De Palma's blowout opens but the whole because it basically sure. is just an exploitation film that then dumps out into the studio um, and I liked that touch when it happened uh, and the idea that these filmmakers are basically sitting there trying to figure out what balance if any you can achieve in trying to depict something like this while also not creating any kind of visceral pleasure um which has obviously been a topic of discussion for decades um but then to me it kind of just hits there are bits where i think it just way overreaches um there's footage of napalming in vietnam that i think is just a completely free associative distraction um i can kind of see where they're coming from including footage of french women being abused after world war ii for having slept with nazis like i i get the association there but it's still getting more and more loose and i think it's it's trying to do too many things even though it's ultimately using very narrow definitions um Mm -hmm. Like it, it even acknowledges that obviously most rapes are committed by people that the victim knows, and yet the film I think 
tries to create this really unnerving atmosphere with just images of parking garages or public parks, the, the kind of things that I think are sort of the public imagination and fear of rape and not how it typically plays out. Um, and to me, it almost didn't, it kind of got so derailed that only the courtroom stuff brought it back, which I found a bit interesting because the courtroom material is by far the most didactic, unstylish, very matter of fact, uh, kind of filibustering on the topic. But I think the film kind of ultimately, to the extent that it succeeded for me, I think it mostly succeeded in that segment. Right. I think that I do agree that it almost, I don't know if it necessarily contradicts itself, but I think that definitely the film more than anything else is about, it's trying to situate rape as both an act of, both an act of complete oblivion and an almost political act Mm -hmm. that's enacted in order to, to, to degrade and to destroy and in that, I def- I think that that's what the more archival documentary-esque portions are going for. I don't know if it, it necessarily meshes well with the rest of the, of the film, but it definitely is situated within there. And I do agree that the courtroom sequence is one of the most impactful parts, largely because it's trying to cover so many different types, so many different situations. Like there's the there's a boss, there's a a boss of one of the women, there's a filmmaker doing screen tests, a husband. And I think these are all certainly important aspects. And it's worth noting for some reason that the, 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 all the rapist depicted in all these situations is the same actor, which I think goes some way to sort of emphasizing the almost universal nature of it, the universal nature of this issue and I, I I don't know if it I don't know if I I can read more than that, but it's it it is definitely I I think that the last sequence, which is what you were referring to in terms of the shots of the of the parking lots and and uh, secluded alleys and things like that. The what does get me about it is that the line immediately before that happens is that it's that, that they say that the, the practical defense is to have every woman wear a whistle around, around, around their neck when they're going around, when they're going out and you just hear these whistles all over Mm -hmm. these places. And so like on a purely visceral level, that's extraordinary. I think that on a more intellectual level, this, the level that the, that Poirier seems to be demanding it's it's questionable certainly I think that certainly the the film resolutely focuses on the on the rape of cis women by cis men uh and that's and it doesn't really go any further that though there are also the children who are this this enormous line of children who who come into the courtroom who are abused um it's so i I think that in in that sense it's also limited however certainly given the enormity of the subject given the the 
the the the importance of of acknowledging the subject while also not trying to cheapen it or downplay it. I think that the film does a great a great deal. I, I think it's it's difficult to love the film for many obvious reasons, but I think in what it's trying to do, I think it's certainly a very important film. I agree. The next film is uh, Rahner Werner Fassbender's In a Year of 13 Moons. Uh, it follows Elvira, a trans woman who is basically trying to put the pieces of her life back together after she is dumped by her boyfriend. And the plot of the movie is very, very simple. It's mainly Elvira sort of recounting her life and and dealing with her increasing sense of alienation from the world, ending, I think, almost the way, almost too logically with her suicide. Um, mm. This film is a very fascinating case for me because I watched this for the first time, I think almost a full decade ago, and was absolutely blown away by it. I think it's probably, I haven't seen all of Fassbender's films because there's so many, but I think mm -hmm. I've seen at least a dozen of them. I think this is by far his best directed film that I've seen. It is stunningly gorgeous. He did his own cinematography and almost every composition is so well done. He uses a lot of angular compositions and a lot of uh, lens distortions to basically obscure dimensions. I think as just this very obvious yet nonetheless effective kind of visual metaphor for a sense of displacement and uh, alienation I was very taken by a lot of its scenes. Uh, the slaughterhouse scene is very early, but it's also such a cornerstone. It feels like a centerpiece, even though I think, I think it happens only 15 or 20 minutes into the film, uh, where Elvira sort of recounts her life as uh, a slaughterhouse worker uh, in earlier times. And it's just this very feverishly played scene where she's off screen uh, kind of going through her life and you're watching actual footage of how a slaughterhouse works. So you're just watching cows being strung up and mm -hmm. bled out. And as she's going through her life, her tone of voice just gets more and more and more frantic. And that scene has stuck with me for a decade in the intervening years, I've seen a lot of trans critics write about this film and point out what are now, I think, very obvious issues uh, that, sure. for want of a better term, you can say Elvira is trans, but in many respects, she's not, in the sense that mm -hmm. it comes out later in the film that she transitioned solely because a man that she loved basically just said it's too bad you're not a woman and right. so it's not really a story about a trans woman trying to find her identity it's really a story about an intensely alienated gay man with trans identity used as a kind of grotesque extremity and so i when i watched it this time i watched it with that lens and i still think 
in terms of craftsmanship and in terms of communicating what it wanted to communicate, which is this very kind of anguished sort of expression of confusion and identity crisis, I think it's still an incredibly powerful film. But I think I now have to check that against what are, I think, very problematic, I think, now is almost an overused and kind of depowered term, but certainly elements that drastically check my enthusiasm for the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was the first time I had seen it. I, I, I did really, really love this film. I think that it's... I definitely agree that it, in terms of being a cogent and clear depiction or or analysis of trans identity i think that it's very likely intensely modeled to to put the lightest tone on it but at the same time i think that what and i think this is something that shares in common with fox and his friends is that all of the all the turmoil all of the questions surrounding queerness and identity i think they ultimately not none of them are necessarily brought are imposed from the outside it's all internal it's all conveyed in the in the way she carries herself the way that she acts the way she interacts with people and i think the what the film which what really surprised me about the film is that it's largely it's it's more than anything, it's a series of encounters. It's a series of her interacting with people, adding on people, subtracting people, and, and that's sort of and it reminded me of of Mike Lee's Naked in that respect. And I think it sh- certainly shares some DNA in common with that. And the certainly there are a few people, a few through ones, obviously played by uh, Volker Spengler, I should say. Um, that I was really surprised at how prominent during the first half uh, Ingrid Coven is mm. uh, as as sort of as presumed a possible sex worker I'm not I'm not totally certain but I thought that was it might have been implied uh, by her introduction but I could be mistaken about that um, she she acts as this sort of as this sort of guiding point a uh, guiding figure for her the first half and then in the second half it's largely focused on her her connection with this in, industrialist Anton Seitz, played by Gottfried John. And Seitz, by contrast, is this sort of childish figure. He re- literally reenacts a, a Jerry Lewis <laughs> scene from a, a, the film. Is it's this sort of scene set in a like a girl a girls' school where where this 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 vast dance is happening it's the film uh, you're never too young uh, a martin lewis film and it's just like there's the film more than anything it's almost it's almost surreal to me it because it has these strange matter of fact interactions that often contain very bizarre things like she has this extended conversation with a man who then commits suicide in front of her where he's talking about about um negation about about the negation of the will to exist. Like he says that uh, that's actually a bold affirmation of will. It's like re- not renouncing the pains of, of life, but rather than rather the joys. And it, 
there like there are many conversations that take on this almost philosophical tone in terms of talking about the con- hum- the human condition the condition of living in cities like there's a extended conversation that takes place in Seitz's office uh with uh with with a chauffeur played by Gunter Kaufman where it's just this talking about the state of the economy and the state of workers within this space which has been vacated so there's this it's a strange haunted sort of feeling i think that it really it really got me on that level i think that i i can't obviously for myself i can't speak to the to the issues it has with with trans identity um but for for what it is for that sort of un, uneasy uneasy sense of interaction that uneasy sense of of many not just her identity but many identities being fractured and questioned i think that it really it really affected me i i agree i kind of i think when i watched it this time i almost approached it the way that i would approach say alfred hitchcock which obviously so many of his films are (laughs) latently homophobic and yet we can still recognize the greatness of them and i think this maybe isn't intending to be as callous and dismissive as it ultimately i think is in terms of just co-opting trans identity as a sort of broader emotional critique of alienation um but in terms of an absolute expression of the artist who made it i think this is it's still a very intensely powerful film to me for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned, because it just feels such, it feels so completely disconnected from everything. And yet it really, it just kind of articulates this entire philosophy of a sort of will to power via annihilation that in a way it's kind of one of the most Nietzschean films I think ever made. <laughs> um, and it even can be funny. I mean, all the Gottfried John stuff, even though that ultimately <laughs> unleashes a lot of the most harrowing revelations. Um, I forgot when he shows up that he just looks like funny games because he's just wearing <laughs> a tennis outfit and he's just got this very yeah. vacant smile on his face. And he's just this, grotesque industrial captain who um that also just an entire side critique that fastbender just very casually drops into it that the person who's driven elvira to these to this kind of state of emotional well-being is ultimately just a guy who clearly disposes of everyone in his life and Mm -hmm. it's it it it's almost a punchline but that makes it sound in incredibly cruel and callous and i don't think fastbender plays it like that but there is an element of very very mordant comedy to that entire character even though ultimately he is a complete monster yeah and speaking of comedy something which maybe shouldn't have made me as amused as i should have been is at the halfway point there's a scene where where coven is is flipping through the channels and the and the three things that I spotted were uh an interview with Fassbender himself just playing on the on the television <laughs> randomly, uh Pinochet coverage and 
PLRs, we won't grow old together. Okay, which I, is just such a. Sp- I didn't clock that that was Fastbender, but I laughed very hard at the Pinochet. <laughs> <laughs> it's just yeah, it, it it makes swings like the the film in many respects. Like like you said, it's magnificently directed, but even more than that, it seems to be just going for all these gambits or almost these like coup de cinemas where like you have the um like this the scene at the at the convents where where a nun is telling the story of the of of Elvira's childhood and her and how she wasn't able to be adopted and this is conveyed through like this series of of tracking shots as the nun is walking through and there's and the and the story that she's telling is both diegetic but it's also like the way it's layered on the mix is that it sounds totally like narration or 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 voiceover and it's just this strange mix like it it moves in and out and the of course the the finale is it basically draws all the major characters into elvira's apartment and it culminates with the nun coming back and walking through touching each of the people like almost like a ghostly spirit or something like that it it's an it's a film it's an ineffable film to me it's it's one that that deliberately resists its 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 categorizations like it has this just free-floating air which i find incredibly impactful yeah i think it's it's completely singular even within the context of fassbender's filmography definitely film is the first of two Andre Vida films surprisingly enough I think his only previous appearance was with the replacement for the Tinto Brass documentary where he had his Siberian Lady Macbeth but he's uh, returned now he's going to become a quite a recurring figure in the coming years this is without anesthesia and uh, notably this is actually the first film in NIF that I know of partially shot on video uh, the opening is sort of a clear, clearly Sean video um, television uh, television interview and the film essentially uh, follows this an international television uh, journalist who returns home from a trip and and is summarily notified of an impending divorce by his wife and essentially the film follows a sort of litany of of degradation and of inexplicable sort of actions committed against him and uh, this includes a sort of rival who is a, a, a younger rival who's revealed to be the 
the man who who his wife plans to leave him for um getting his lecture series lecture series canceled due to a mix-up in in uh, scheduling his his newspapers not being taken to his desk and so on and so forth and uh it's a film i had i i, I quite liked it and i think that it it has especially a, a very strong sense of direction of sort of these of these handheld academy racial frames which which have a considerable sense of like they they have a good sense of 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 a strange rhythm they give a strange rhythm to each of the shots which i quite liked in tandem with like this very cold cold color color scheme and but i think that it's it felt unclear to me not necessarily in a bad way but in a way that held me back in terms of whether it was trying to critique him or 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 the level of critique basically i think that i had assumed going in that would ultimately end up being a pretty harsh critique of him and his sort of intellectual class and this was sort of bolstered by uh for him being played by his big new Zeba Siwich uh who because of camouflage from the previous year directed by Zanussi like I just automatically um, associate with this sort of like craven craven intellectual sort of format but the, the film as stands almost plays like it plays it's largely sympathetic to me, which I couldn't quite, which I, I feel like the, at a certain point it feels the, the film felt like it was almost stacking the deck against them just by piling so much on that. And that it never quite, quite f- it felt as, as clear as it should be. It always felt a little bit opaque, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It just, it, it gave me, it gave me a little bit of a pause it definitely struck me as an iron curtain job um, with <laughs> this guy who I, I'm kind of in the same boat in the sense that when you meet him, you meet him via a TV interview where he sounds incredibly smug and he <laughs> is talking about how he's an expert on all these countries. I mean, basically just speaking on behalf of Africa, like all these, like all these things that right. if you showed in a film now, you would immediately assume that this guy was just the biggest asshole on the planet. But then it very swiftly transitions into a combination of his wife mistreating him. Not well, or it just at least following a divorce. And then it just spirals when, the government gets involved and decides almost casually to just ruin this guy's life bit by bit. (laughs) And I, I'm surprised at how explicit it is about the idea of the communist state, basically just being a completely capricious un just meaninglessly punitive body when he was still very much working under censorship and it almost makes me wonder the extent to which they made he made the protagonist this stuffy intellectual to maybe try to slip by the idea that he deserved it but i'm (laughs) legitimately surprised this film was released um but i mean it's certainly not the first time anyone's gotten uh has thumbed their nose at power and gotten it out in the world but um i did like that it's it's definitely shot like a paranoid thriller. A lot of the interiors are very cramped and very, uh, they're shot 
kind of at these nervous angles that are just very oppressive. But what I found most interesting is that it's kind of a paranoid thriller about a guy who gives up almost immediately. Uh, the, the, very, the most surprising <laughs> aspect of this movie is that he's a completely passive protagonist who, I mean, his, more or less his protests stop by the hour mark. And after that, he just kind of rides with it as he is just degraded more and more. And that was, a, I don't know the extent to which that works for me but i found it just a completely fascinating experiment in narrative if nothing else to just have a protagonist who completely surrenders to the idea that he is doomed <laughs> right there's a certain sense of i think he rejects dignity but he but it's like he's almost willing to suffer the indignity in favor of like actually trying to do the work mm-hmm. in a certain extent like he it's it's like it uh, throughout he does interact surprisingly frequently with his wife and it's just like he he never is able to quite say what he wants to say he's never quite able to uh ask her why he's why why she's leaving him for for this extraordinarily neurotic and and uh and in his own way sort of pompous or or um like younger younger uh younger critic but I, I think that the thing that that always felt unresolved to me which is very which very well might have been intended is that you never i never really got a sense of what the what the characters were like before like whether much of what was said whether was whether he was actually uncaring or 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 uninterested in in his in his family like I feel like that was something that I missed, and, and which which never quite felt resolved enough for for me to really get a handle on the characters themselves. So I think it was more the the what to to the degree that the film works for me, which is uh, not inconsiderable, is just the way it just its manner of unfolding, the sort of bleak comedy of of much of the film <laughs> in, in in terms of like uh, in, in terms of just the sort of subdued subdued moments before suddenly bursting out into these uh into these into these outbursts like there's a wonderful scene where he uh has a physical fight with the younger man and easily beats him which i found very funny and then she and then the wife uh goes to him goes to goes to the main character but and then that's not never brought up again like there are moments like that like it cuts suddenly It, it it makes itself a little bit like I, I and to some degree I, I liked that that essence that sort of downplaying downplaying of the individual links in favor of a more free floating things like there's a there's a a student or a former student of his who becomes his mistress but that's sort of very slowly doled out or very slowly introduced like she just floats in and then like she's she's present in many scenes but it's never quite emphasized which i found interesting like there like just moments the the way it teases out these arcs and especially the uh a mutual friend of of him and his wife wanda who has who is the dentist who administers the sort of (laughs) extraction the tooth extraction which he uh handles very poorly without anesthesia (laughs) even his uh, I, i think that's um, that's probably the 
best encapsulation of the film is him refusing to dull his pain in any way and then taking it very poorly once <laughs> it actually happens. It's very Cohen-esque in a way. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And like the I do think the trial the trial sequence that essentially closes the film is both one of the main examples of the problem and of what makes it interesting is even while suppo- apparently there are like all the witnesses being called are just lying about him and slandering him, but he's just sitting there with this stone face, like just just staring at his at his wife. That things like that it, it makes it. On one hand, I'm uneasy about. It. I'm never quite sure how I'm, how I feel about it. On the other hand, it it works. It just works in terms of its uh, uh its affect, I guess. The next film is. A documentary, uh, The Wobblies, directed by Stuart Bird and Deborah Schaefer, and this is a pretty a pretty conventional sort of documentary about the IWW, the International Workers of the Worlds, and essentially their um, their the the story of their most impactful in, impactful period from the from their founding in the 1900s to the mid 1920s, um, and it's. It's, I, I certainly wouldn't say, I, I think it's solid more than anything else. I think it at times relies too much on a sort of folksiness or a certain mythologizing to a certain extent. But at the same time, it has, uh, of the IWW, but at the same time, it has plenty of interviews, plenty of um, of just firsthand testimony, which is which is just genuinely nice to see it's just nice to see these elderly elderly folks just talking very candidly about their participation about the about the various qualities it had including the sort of the clashes they had with the afl which which refused to accept um unskilled laborers and which was directly contrary to the iww um point of view especially deals with the with the um with their actions during during the first world war and especially how um uh, and especially how that led to a sort le- led to increased conflict with the US government i think that it's maybe a bit too general i think that it largely just bounces from strike to strike important strike to important strike until it reaches the ends but at the same time i think i like how it delves into the particulars of certain industries, especially the lumber industry, um, in terms of how they related to the how the laborers within that related to the IWW, um, the the best part I think is easily the very opening of the film, which is this sort of I think it gets at the all the confrontation and 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 not necessarily uh, the confrontation and plain spokenness that really that really typifies this the what the film could have been where it's just this this man speaking or like this authoritative man speaking like what's your religion and and the and one of the laborers says i i haven't got any and this is all in voiceover over pictures of mugshots of of laborers and who's your family I have none. Well, who's your best friend? Big Bill Haywood. But he's in prison with you too. 
that doesn't make a difference you know, things like that it's like, just like very clear very sharp in a way that the rest of the film doesn't really get at and there's a bit too much montage as well like too much reliance on this sort of archival very general sort of um silent silent film footage or like silent actuality footage but i think it i think it does what it wants to do it, it was funny it's just seeing that they that there's a section on bisbee considering my great admiration for bisbee 17 mm-hmm. uh, that, that was just a sort of a strange entry point but i think that it's it's solid i don't i can't really say much more for it but it's 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 decent yeah this is the last one that i didn't watch so <laughs> the next film is another andre vita film the maids of wilco uh and this is a much uh, quite a different film uh in i think more than anything it makes for a nice auteurist pairing with without anesthesia though i don't, I don't think it's uh, nearly as successful and it's basically the story of this man victor returning to his hometown which he hadn't been to in 15 years uh, basically no contact and the film is basically him reconnecting with the with five separate sisters who uh who all or four four of them had some form of amorous attentions to him at one point or another during when he was living in in wilco um the the and all of these sort of passions are reignited uh, to some degree or another when he returns. Apparently he was incredibly radiant uh, when he was young. Uh, and it's also, there's also a fifth sister who was, who was young, qu- quite young when he left, but whose return is now a grown woman. And there's also a, a sixth sister who was, he was the most involved with who, who died in the intervening years. And it's a, I actually think it has pretty much the same problem, but maybe to an even greater degree than without anesthesia in terms of it being a bit too, I, well, I think it's, it, it feels a bit too, like it feels a bit too conventional for lack of a better term. I think it feels very conventional in terms of the ways it deals with each of these sisters as a sort of archetype of one manner of, of a, of the way a woman is expected to behave and the and also i think that there's that not having the sense of them as younger people as people who haven't been brought down by just the doldrums of life it feels kind of flat in that terms but i did like the the way it he just bounces between them i think that it has a it had an a nice flow to it with him just having one heartful conversation after another. And the, I did like in stark contrast to without anesthesia, there's a very bright, very sunny, almost, almost like blown out sort of cinematography to it, which I quite liked uh, befitting the sort of setting, but it, but it doesn't necessarily work all that well for me. I think it's interesting, especially in that terms of scene where Vita's interests are, but it doesn't necessarily work all that well. I agree. I think I enjoyed it mostly just to see the sheer level of contrast with without anesthesia. It's a completely different looking film. It uh, 
without contrast this is a very coldly lit very intimate paranoid film and this is a very stately very mm-hmm. sunny hazy drama it i'm sure there's a million european style stories about the aftermath of world war one but this reminded me a lot of faulkner and just the idea of coming <laughs> back after a, this devastating war as an entirely different person and trying to reconnect with a shattered past um but it just never really cohered i think the characterizations are so flimsy everyone is very clearly <laughs> all the women are just a separate personality to the i mean yeah. and a very distinct no overlap personality to the point that it's almost like seven dwarf level like (laughs) with him as snow white because everyone Mm. is so thoroughly distinct that you almost can't really imagine them coexisting under the same roof they have they just have no chemistry with each other and to the extent that without anesthesia makes its protagonist the the victim of family court which i still think is kind of funny um (laughs) this is portraying this very dull man who i don't even it if without anesthesia presents you with with a protagonist who um is sympathetic in terms of what is done to him but is still nonetheless kind of challenges that sympathy just by the nature of his personality i don't even know that the protagonist here has enough personality to make you care one way or the other (laughs) Yeah, and I, I think it's a solid film, but to me, I I think of the of the two double auteur pairings that this festival offered, I think this is by far the less interesting, uh, unexpected double header. One hundred percent. Yeah, it's. I I think that there are some interesting moments. I think there's a, especially a moment where one of the where the the youngest the youngest sister is pointing a sniper rifle at it. Yes. <laughs> Which it, it it just comes out of nowhere and it's just this utterly strange moment. I thought for, I did genuinely think that there was a possibility that he might be at least wounded, but the trigger is never pulled, sadly. But it's, but yeah, it, it's never, the character never feels like he just always feels hollow. He never even feels like callow enough to really go for the you know, seduction of five separate women. Like he, it never quite feels like it full. It feels like it emanates more out of history, like, or like his history with these women than with his actual attraction, uh, which could be well done, but it doesn't necessarily, but that history doesn't feel as well established as it should be. It always feels too, too, underdeveloped for its own for its own good yeah i mean you you, it's possible to pull off a story in which everyone is basically an allegory but it (laughs) i don't think it's done well here no uh the next film is the black stallion uh directed by carol ballard it's the story of a young boy named alec who is on a cruise in north africa or i can't know if it's a cruiser like any or some kind of like actual business ship but uh The ship is capsized in a storm, and he is shipwrecked on an abandoned island with this racehorse that he encountered during the cruise. And the entire, most of the first 
act of the film, once he is shipwrecked, is completely without dialogue. And it is purely this child forming a bond with this horse as he also learns to survive on his own. And then eventually they are both rescued and the boy takes the horse back with him to New York and basically tries to live out a normal life, but eventually takes the horse to a farm just so it can have some place to be and is trained to be a racer by this retired jockey played by Mickey Rooney. And I had never seen this film. And generally speaking, it's not, it's not exactly a robust genre, but I tend to not really care about horse films out of all the, out of all the films that are about animals as protagonists or effective protagonists. I tend to feel like horses, even though they're an interesting animal, obviously, I just tend not to, for whatever reason, think that they make for good cinema. I was completely blown away by this. Um, mm. I had I had no idea how it was structured. I had no idea really about anything other than it was just about a boy and his horse. So when that sh- when the ship capsizes and the next half hour plus is completely wordless and it's this incredibly patiently observed almost fantastical segment of this child not only learning how to fend for himself but forge a bond with this tempestuous barely broken racehorse i loved every second of that um i think almost by default when it goes back to the quote-unquote real world it uh necessarily is just not as transfixing because that entire first section is such a bold way to shoot what is ultimately a child's film um but i think i even said on twitter when i saw it this has got to be the only film ever made where becoming an underdog sports story is the most unexpected, weirdest possible conclusion <laughs> that a movie could have. <laughs> when it when it abruptly pivots from this very tactile, um, neo-silent film to uh, Rocky on horseback, it's just one of the strangest <laughs> narrative pivots I've ever encountered. <laughs> Yeah, this is yeah, this is great. I I really I I definitely think that the first half certainly is just so so clear, so so crystalline in its intent that the move back to civilization is a bit rough, but I think that the I was surprised at how quickly it went back went to focusing on Alex training with with Mickey Rooney. Uh I think that it almost is trying to get everything else out of the way so it can get to that to that racehorse element. And I think and what's really strong about it is that it just force forges this bond even tighter. Like it forges this additional level of trust between Alec and the horse. And I think that the and I think that just Ballard just knows Ballard he he was a cinematographer before this and though he didn't shoot the films shot by Caleb Deschanel it nevertheless has just this innate sense of beauty to it it it's just so it's it, it's just so clearly evidently beautiful in terms of the way it balances like 
the the blue of the sea and the sky and the red of the fire or or of or just like the forms of Alec and the horse moving through the through the sand or the or the ocean and all and this is also translated into the sort of into the real world seconds where where during the races there're just these intense close-ups on on individual it, it, it's a very it, it's just edited together incredibly well just all, all these different perspectives on on this much even more dynamic even more even more um, go ahead force of motion and i also love how matter of fact the his return to like his discovery of the boat that brings him back to civilization <laughs> like he's just diving one day and he sees a he just happens to see like this entire boat with oars coming out of it uh just like that's what that's what's wonderful about the film is that it doesn't necessarily try to overemphasize moments like what when sudden unexpected turns happen it's more mystical in a certain sense it 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 treats these moments as something that it's more experienced and explainable like you have the the absolutely sublime um ride where he's in in the rain essentially trying out for a sports broadcaster so that he'll be entered into the climactic race and you don't see a horse at all you just hear it and you just get all these close-ups on people watching including mickey rooney various stopwatches running the rain spattering on the windshields and then you and then you get the horse to come back around like you don't have to see the horse moving at lightning speeds in order to understand the sort of effect it's having on on the view on the onlookers yeah i mean and that's as as odd of a narrative shakeup as it is to head in that direction even that is handled so poetically i would i honestly in terms of late stage new hollywood uh films i would say this is i would put this almost on an even keel with days of heaven as one of the most beautiful mm. american films of that time um mm-hmm. every single shot looks amazing so much is communicated visually um and even the and i the performances are so wonderfully understated uh because mickey rooney definitely came out of the very you know this obviously one of the most famous child actors of all time Mm -hmm. came of age in a wildly different time of Hollywood filmmaking (laughs) with an entirely different approach to acting, but he is so underplayed here and so subtle. And it's absolutely not the performance I was expecting when I saw Mickey Rooney's name flash up (laughs) on the opening credits. I had no idea he had a performance like this in him because every other Mickey Rooney performance I've ever seen, granted they're all from him being much younger, but (laughs) the energy on those is so hyped up. Whereas he just completely plays what is now, you know, the stock character of the broken down veteran of the sports drama who's seen it all and has a kind of low key cynicism. Uh, Terry Garr is also phenomenal as Alex's mother, where you can see her immense concern watching her child imprint <laughs> way too much on this colossal horse who you know could very easily kill her child i mean horses are not safe animals really um but she also 
she really underplays the realization that that's the only way her child is ever going to remotely reintegrate into society. Mm -hmm. Um, even though you would think at first blush that him continuing to interact with the horse is just going to make things worse. Um, which reminds me of, there's a very small but funny sequence when they come back, when he comes back and he's at school and the school has this incredibly awkward (laughs) presentation about him returning home. And this girl gets up and just starts reading a poem that she wrote. And they're all like nine years old and it just feels so realistic in its own strange little way that they would just have no idea how to handle something this bizarre that they would all just have a weird assembly (laughs) dedicated to this child who looks profoundly uncomfortable. Um, But just, I mean, as, as funny as that sequence is, it just feels so true to life. This is as, as whimsical and uh, very kind of hyped up poetic as this film is, it also feels incredibly observant. Right, absolutely. And it should mention Alex is played by Kelly Reno. And like he, he didn't really have any uh, roles largely to, to an entry, but he's just like, he's also phenomenal here. He's just so, even like both within the, silent sequences where it's just him and the horse for 40 minutes or something like that and also just in he he doesn't speak much even uh out even outside of it even even in the real life scenes it's just much more on his face remind me a little bit of Haley joel osmond or yes someone like that like both in like something about the eyes but just like the sort of intentness like he's always watching but he's never he never comes across as in in a thought inauthentic nine-year-olds like he's always uh he always has that sort of playfulness about him but he's able to channel that into this determination that is what the film really needs um yeah it's it's a it's a film that it's definitely i it hits that boy adventure tone extremely well and and it is able to incorporate these different modes so that the the transition even though it's a bit rushed it also it gives a lot of consideration to these in individual moments just like the the genuine interest and the genuine sort of life that that mickey rooney finds in in this pursuit for instance like it, it finds that it finds that sense of purpose which is really strong the next film is Yet another retrospective, uh, but a very, a, a very another one surrounding a film long out distribution. This is Michael Powell's *Peeping Tom* from 1960, which I believe this was the first time it was shown in the U.S. uncut. I think there was some form of the film shown prior to that, though it was largely mutilated for uh, obvious reasons. Uh, but this is the essentially the story of of Mark this photographer um works on a film set as a works on film sets as a focus puller sometime uh sometime pornographic film or pornographic picture taker and uh also a also something of a serial killer he's essentially his his interest he, he was abused as a child by his scientist father who wanted to discover the 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 sort of root causes and effects of fear and so mark has sublimated that into his interest in 
in filmmaking and photography and he wants to he he wa- he watches the films of him murdering murdering women and it surrounds his his attempts to try to get to to film a documentary about this and also his interactions with uh with Helen uh who's his downstairs neighbor slash tenant who forms this romantic attraction to him especially because they have this shared interest in in uh in photography in photography to a certain extent but also like capturing emotion capturing um images capturing people and it is it it, this is actually the first time i had seen it but i really really loved this film and i was really surprised by it because of how much it how thoroughly it interrogates all manner of cases. I think that it's very important that it's not only Mark, uh, played by Carl Boehm, uh, who is subject to the to this obsession with the gays, but I think every character, except crucially for for Helen's mother, is is focused on this to some degree or another. Um, whether it be their the way that they're perceived by others or their own perception. And it's full of outre elements beginning inexplicably with the sort of wide availability of pornography in, in Britain at the time. Like there are just, there are just uh newsstands like fill, filled with, filled with nude images, just, just plastered everywhere. I don't know why, but it feels it feels so ingrained in in the society, in, ingrained in the way these um, characters interact with each other, like the both acceptable sort of taboos or acceptable codes, and their and their the danger of their extensions. It it really, I I, w- I was extremely taken with it. In terms of sort of taking a lot of core Hitchcockian models and just pushing them to their extremes while also analyzing them. It kind of feels like Michael Powell beat Brian De Palma to the punch by a full decade <laughs> and a half. Um, yeah. Cause obviously this came out the same year as psycho. And I think it's basically, it almost feels like a metatextual commentary on psycho, even though that's mm-hmm. obviously not possible. Um, <laughs> Cause I think this actually came out a few months earlier anyway, mm-hmm. um, much less the time it takes to put together a film, but um <laughs> Just the way that it sees direction as this inherently exploitative act, uh, the perverse logic of the ending where he all like he intends from the start to impale himself, and that's the only way he can see the film ending. It's such a smart, just brazen decision to make in 1960. <laughs> um, <laughs> it feels like something like that should have come along a full decade later. And it doesn't surprise me that it took so long for this film to actually be shown properly. Um, And it's so unlike Michael Powell in so many ways. And yet on a stylistic level, the use of color, uh, even, even when it takes a step back and shows you how direction works, it just, it feels in a lot of ways like you're watching Michael Powell put together a film even though it's leagues apart in terms of tone and what it's communicating from 
even even the darkest Powell Pressburgers, like even Black Narcissus, even Small Back Room, are nowhere near as savage as this movie is. <laughs> and it's I oh I haven't seen this in a couple of years, and I keep hoping that they will announce a restoration of it because obviously they've been going through all the Powells over the last decade or so, um, and the existing. I believe Criterion DVD is not that great. It's sourced from what they could source it from, but it's pretty shoddy visual quality as I remember it. But I love this film. I This, I think, is one of... I think I would prefer this to Psycho, actually. Mm. Yeah, I think it's definitely close for me, too. And I, it, just like I think so much of the surprise is in how it introduces just these other competing elements alongside Mark and Helen and uh, Helen played by Anna Massey. I think both Bohm and Massey are wonderful in the film for precisely opposite reasons. I think Bohm is like, I don't know if he's, I I wouldn't say necessarily totally stiff, but he's definitely much more mannered in his acting. Uh, And he's, especially the German accent he has as just this another layer of distancing from everyone else. And then Massey is just so full of life and so naive in a wonderful way. Um, but like the two, two supporting characters made like an even stronger impression for me. On the one hand, there's Maura Shearer who plays Vivian, who's this stand in who has this incredible scene where she's, she's essentially like she she thinks that she's going to film this scene with um with Mark after hours on the film set and so she's to warm up she's just she just has this sort of uh this upbeat music and she's just dancing around the set and she just has such a strong energy that's like the liberating force from the from the rest of the film and then she's she's just killed at the halfway point or something like that and then there's uh there's Maxime Aldi who plays Helen's mother, who is one of the creepiest non-villain characters I've ever seen in the <laughs> film. <laughs> she, she's blind, but like from, but she has just such a, such an, a menacing affect. Like she has a pivotal scene where she's, she confronts Mark and she reveals that she's actually been hiding in, in his dark room every night somehow. <laughs> and just, and just, listening to him watches what what are actually his his snuff films and and she has a cane that also has like a a tip on it that looks not too dissimilar from the tripod knife that that mark has and it's just and it's just like a perfect negative negative image of mark's um pathology his his scopophilia as is mentioned in the in the film is is this sort of this other method of perception this other way where where it's through touch and through this more physical act which is something that he can't really manage it's just those there are so many competing elements in it there's so many strange (laughs) strange things about it and just it's so ghastly in a, in a certain way just all the colors that are just smeared across especially in the dark room of course you have the glare of the red but also the the lights that are shown throughout the film set it's actually one of the more detailed depictions of a film set i've seen especially because he's a focus polar so he's like measuring the distance for each for each camera uh 
each block each set of blocking. <laughs> it's such a nerdy yeah. it, every now and then it's such a just a nerdy film <laughs> <laughs> yeah and perhaps the ultimate scene is is this one where he's being interviewed by cops and they're fiddling with his camera yes. and he's just so you can just see that he's just so antsy about them and you know that's i i would say that's probably one of the more harrowing scenes in the film <laughs> simply because you wonder like are they gonna break it somehow uh which is you know its own sort of uh messed up thinking but still it's the film encourages that which is i think it's is wonderful about it's it, I, I don't think it's even necessarily indicting the viewer i wouldn't say if it's it's necessarily trying to say oh you're bad for watching but it's trying to look at more of the causes rather than issue a judgment because i think the ending is genuinely like really emotional and really sad because there is this genuine connection between mark and helen that is thwarted for many reasons but i, th- I think it's it it manages a balance really really well yeah the closing night film is the other film in this Festival by Rainer Werner Fassbender, The Marriage of Maria Braun, uh, which first in his, in his BRD trilogy. Um, and essentially it's a story of of this woman who, of, of Maria, who's married at the, towards the middle part of, the, of World War II. And she's separated from her husband, presumed dead and first it the film essentially begins in the aftermath of world war ii and she after a series of attempts to find uh to find other love in in the place of her, the presumed death of her husband after her husband returns she enters into this sort of into this contract with a industrialist um who sells nylon stockings um Named, named Carl Oswald and the film essentially details her 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 sort of negotiation her her negotiation her indomitable will to essentially take over the to to take as much wealth as she can get partially to provide for her husband who is in jail for a number of years and also also just for her own sense of drive sense of purpose and this is this is my favorite film of the festival. Uh, it's, I I was told like, and I love, I do love Fassbender, but I was totally, I totally did not expect this because I think that the other films that I consider f- favorites of what I've seen from Fassbender are all decidedly of the more tragic variety and much more of the sort of anguished circian, I guess, or, or um, circian dissected, uh, method and this one i i thought was just so delightful so wonderful in its in how uh how blasé how assured it was i think more than anything it's just about seeing the pleasure of of maria who's played by of course hannah shaygula just bulldozing her way through through any obstacle that stands in her way her just determined to find work to find money to find the to flourish in this new economic miracle by any means necessary and i and for that i think it's just it captures that like the the, i think the filmmaking is is as 
is more or less as assured as as Fassbender has seen in terms of how like there's something about his how Fassbender in in most of his films like is able to just to find all these strange angles these strange ways of looking at the at at his actors uh but i think especially here and especially just in any scene focusing on shakula like there's this one that i've been thinking about where it's just this tracking shot as she's as she's making her way through a bar and as she's moving the all the dancers to this either side of her are just turning their heads to look at her as she walks to this table it's i think that the entire film feels like some variation on that to me it's it i it i i was just so utterly taken aback by this i just found it such a beautiful delight and uh it there there's just so much it feels like it contains so much about what i love about fastminder what i love about this sort of this strain of of filmmaking where it's just like a like a celebration of a certain sort like it's like it it's certainly a critique to a certain uh to a strong degree but it's also it doesn't it doesn't totally judge her which i think is really crucial to what the film is doing well that's the amazing thing because it i mean you know, Fassbender is a deeply symbolic filmmaker and very obviously, I mean, almost from the jump, she is depicted as just the embodiment of post-war German recovery. And Mm -hmm. in the sense that literally she, possibly the greatest opening shot of any film I've ever seen, (laughs) which is just of a brick wall with a photo of Hitler on it. that just gets blown up and then you see her and her, and her husband, uh, at the altar, which I could have, if I had been in a theater when that played, I would have literally stood up and applauded. <laughs> um, but so, you know, they get married literally as the Soviets are just homing in, and he is presumably killed in action immediately. She mm-hmm. swiftly pivots to cozying up with, with the Americans. Then that mm-hmm. goes south because she's reminded of her German identity, but in the form of her husband coming back, then he goes to prison to be punished for, and, and she then pivots to sleeping with an industrialist to, you know, a get by and then B get ahead. And it would be so easy to just depict that as either tragic or, um, even a satire, but, she gives such a forceful performance and she just bulldozes through so many people that literally, I think the film that came to mind most was the other great film about um, the, the other great allegory for post-war Axis power recovery, which is of course Godzilla <laughs> in the sense that <laughs> she just pummels through everything in her path. And I'm sure if you put, I mean, if you told me that she's the one who punched down that brick wall at the first shot, I would believe you by the (laughs) end of it because nothing that gets thrown at her even slows her down. She goes on trial once for murder and talks her way out of it and even talks her husband into taking the blame for his own (laughs) cuckoldry. Um, She, oh, it's such, it's such a profound performance and i think in a lot of ways it feels like the purest possible fassbender performance 
because it just completely seizes all of the allegorical, all the symbolic importance of that part. But it just completely kicks down the door on everything. And every single scene she's in, which is, of course, is almost all scenes, she mm-hmm. is. There is never a point where she's not the focal point of the composition. Um, even when he's shooting deep focus, even when you're watching stuff in the background that does impact Maria, it's all, it's difficult to not just watch her at every single clip. Uh, like the early scene where she's sitting at a table with friends and there's a bunch of American GIs and they're just making a bunch of crass remarks about them. And she walks back there and in German basically tells them, you know, I, I don't know what you're saying, but stop it and they despite not speaking german just pick up her drift and it comes back she sits down at the table and it's just a it's a deep focus shot and you see the gi's kind of sitting at the table in the background and they look genuinely a bit taken aback and one guy gets up and walks over and hands her two packs of cigarettes and apologizes in english (laughs) and she watches him walk back to his table sit down very meekly and she just bursts into laughter and it's like (laughs) such a power move oh i i thought i had seen this movie i think just because there are so many fastbenders that I've already I've seen at least three Fassbenders made in 1978 and 1979 <laughs> that I guess I just assumed that this is one of them, but I hadn't. And within three minutes, I was hooked. And if the ending is if, if the beginning is perfect, so is the ending, which is yeah. Uh, this perfect Fassbender, literally explosive conclusion that is. If I laughed so hard to the point that I thought maybe I'm being may, maybe I have projected humor into this, but no, it's everything about the ending is so funny. <laughs> Even though it, it's it's the perfect narrative conclusion for this entire story, and it's the perfect symbolic conclusion of this idea of Germany recovering on this robust economic miracle, but in some ways obliterating itself to get to that point. Mm-hmm. But God, this. I I think I'd probably still say Nosferatu just because I've had such a long mm-hmm. history with it is my favorite of this slate, but this was incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's just it. It's just everything about her, the way like fundamentally, it's a film about her sort of performance, her adapt adaptability or malleability in order to fit any situation, like where she, uh, when she's propositioned by a uh an american soldier she she just gets up and in in basically perfect english she's she says she's gonna kick him in the balls and she's gonna like report him to his 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 uh commanding officer and then he salutes her (laughs) or 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 with the or with the industrialist where one or or at night she's totally loving she's totally uh accepting of his affections and then in the and then at the workplace the the next mo- the next morning she's just totally cold she's totally professional like she's a like just the way that it's able to make all of these facets work together i think that the film it's both all surface and all subtext yes. like it manages to be both at the same time like it, like both are projected onto each other and the and I, I, largely i think that's uh, I think Fassbender's capability to draw out the sort of the the various elements of the um, 
of the society surrounding her, like making it clear exactly why she needs to do it. The, the absolute destitute um, conditions of, of Germany at that time. Like those are all very evident from the outset. So when it's going into this Baroque sense of performance and, and, uh, and like just incredible quick right um rising the ranks it's able to emphasize the it's able to bring all of those elements together like the, it it feels grounded and yet it feels totally separate from reality like she's living if it would feel like she's living in a dream world where not for the crumbling ruins around her like it like it, it's a it returns to those things again and again and it's never I don't think it ever shortchanges its characters. Like, sure, some of them might might behave more like in a specific vein, but it, that's you can tell that it's because they chose that vein because that's in their in that's the way that they would always act, and regardless of situation. So that's why it's able. To, that's why the she's able to take advantage of this particular situation of this economic miracle because she is her ruthlessness her her capacity for for understanding the for understanding exactly how her skills can be used how people can be manipulated or just run over is is beyond understanding (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's and and both the yeah i i just love i love that Godfrey John plays like a, a union man who who is very friendly friendly with her even as, as she's saying to a reporter that 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 the demands of the union are are blackmail. <laughs> I, I, I love I, I love this sort of the the strange uh relationship that she has with um Hark Bohm's character Sankenberg who plays this sort of accounted figure who is who is much more attached to to Oswald than than her. The, there's just so many different elements to it. Like it, I, and it's so acidic. It's so cold, but it, it never and and heartless. Like heartless is both exactly the right term and also feels like it doesn't quite capture the spirit of the film because it's just so playful. Like I it. it like it recognizes like, all of the all of the poison that's involved in an enterprise like this, and yet it almost doesn't really matter because it's Hannah Shigila, and she's just so radiant, even as she's slipping the knife between the ribs. Like I, <laughs> I, I, it's it's hard to encapsulate because it moves through so much ground so quickly, but at the same time, it's all like it's it's all in the way she like after herman returns for the final time she immediately assumes the sor- sort of role of wife even as she's sort of like chiding him and controlling the the means of engagement it's like oh well wait a bit to to kiss or something like that like it's it, it it's it's a feat it's just such a a feat of balance and of of assuming these different roles i i, I can't I, I love it so 100 percent. i uh, best double feature of all time would be this and gone girl <laughs> yeah that'd be a great double feature uh 
I swear, I, it actually reminded me of Ashes Pierce White to a certain degree too. I can absolutely like that middle 100% section. see that. Yeah, just like it, and it even starts on a train too. Like that, that sort of conning uh, element because starts on a train. Uh, yeah, it's just like all of the all of the willpower in the world is contained in this film somehow. It's <laughs> it's absolutely it's absolutely wonderful, a masterpiece. So that concludes this edition of the New York Film Festival. And uh, what what did you think of uh, now that we've gone through all these films? But uh, do you have any more uh, further thoughts about this uh, about this festival? This really hammers home my general experience with film festivals is going to the Toronto Fest each year because New York is just so diffuse that it's hard as a, someone who doesn't live in New York to attend it on any long term basis. Um, the focus of this festival is always a pleasure, even contemporary, even current day. But this selection, I thought, not only was it just good in general, I mean, even the weakest film, I think, is at worst fine. Like, if you played the Europeans at a film festival now, I would just kind of give it <laughs> a gentlemanly two stars and move on. But so many of these films, they're not politically linked, but there's a lot of stylistic links throughout all of these um as weird as it is to open with la luna i actually do see a kind of curious logic in pairing that as a closing night film with marriage of maria braun in the idea that there are these very opulently directed films about a kind of perverse form of self-actualization um there are i think corollaries between uh, something like My Brilliant Career and Alexandria Y, which played the same night, uh, mm-hmm. between Short Memory and Other People's Money. I, there, I, I am been really impressed, not only, like I said, with just how generally speaking I enjoyed all of these, but the kind of narrative logic that links a lot of these selections together. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, yeah, I I was sort of thinking while I was watching of these strange pairings and of of the strange sort of like th- that that sense of linking, like whether like even something like Blackjack and Black, the Black Stallion about the children's adventure sort of mode. I think that there are these strange links, which I don't remember. I don't remember seeing to such an extent to in previous editions. Obviously, that that can be taken as either a plus or a minus. I, I think that it's just like it's a 
it, it's I think maybe a, just a quirkier edition than than maybe some past editions that uh, that I've covered on this podcast. Just there are part partly for the predominance of English films, partly because of these strange links and these just the the general wildness. I think a lot of the films have, share this sort of sense of a wild throw everything at the wall uh, approach which works better in some and not as well in others but it's something that but that i i found quite fascinating to to experience absolutely yeah. absolutely so yeah thank you jake for 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 <laughs> for guesting and for wading through all these films with me uh, and thank you to the listener as always for bearing with both my schedules and my episode links i think that this one might not have been as streamlined as hoped but i think that there was sort of i think that we're hopefully trending in that direction uh and we'll, we'll certainly see what happens as we go from guest to guest and at festival to festival uh but thank you for thank you for listening and thank you to jake once again thanks for having me yeah absolutely thank you thank you